VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, May the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's have a great come out with an edition of the program this morning. That means you have to join us in the queue and on the air. Topic up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCN, which is 8626. We're on a hot streak. Another glorious day in this neck of the woods, heading up into the high teens, apparently, this afternoon, so... That's the good news. And our last chance to have another Newfoundland or Labradorian latch onto the Stanley Cup this year, Dawson Mercer, out. Him and the Devils out, lost in overtime last night, even though Mercer scored a beauty first goal of the game. Out they go. And, of course, Leafs and the Oilers back at it tonight. The Growlers, Reading Royals came into Mary Brown Center last night, trailing the series 3-0, got a big 6-3 win. The Growlers gave up four goals in the first period. They're back at it on Saturday night. And while we get ready to see the Jays, Hosting Atlanta tonight in Toronto. It was on this date in 2004 that Randy Johnson, he was playing with the Arizona Diamondbacks at the time, became the oldest major league pitcher to throw a perfect game. He was 40 years of age. And, of course, Randy Johnson, second all-time on the strikeout list behind Nolan Ryan. There's only four players in major league history uh, struck out over 4,000 batters. So, of course, Ryan, Johnson, Clemens, and the big lefty Steve Carlton. All right. We're all, unfortunately, familiar with the story surrounding what would be allegations of sexual assault with junior hockey players playing for Team Canada back in 2017. And there's other examples, and there's other sports where we've seen this. And now, thankfully, the federal government has come forward with new sport governance to try to make sure that inside the national sports organizations that it's a safe environment for the athletes. So they brought forward a number of measures. So change in the governance. Every NSO is going to have to fully adopt the foundation of governance principles in the Canada Sport Governance Code by 2025, uh, by April of 2025, and a couple of really important ones. There's not going to be any non-disclosure or non-disparaging clauses to be used ever again to prevent athletes and other sport participants from disclosing maltreatment they have experienced or witnessed. So that's an important move. Other ones, athletes going to be involved in all the decision-making structures. This is going to be an important one too. Standards and certifications for coaches. Consistent screening and certification of coaches are essential, so you're going to have to provide all this information on an ongoing basis to the Coaching Association of Canada. And if you've ever been sanctioned by any national sports organization, you are going to have to be on a public registry so we can find out who you are, what you've done, what you've been accused of. So a couple of important ones to hopefully provide a safe environment for the high-level athletes, in particular at the national sports organizations. All right. So we find out now that the so-called, what they're calling a grocery rebate, which is generally just a one-time bump up in the GST, similar to what happened last year, it will come out on the 5th of July. A couple of confusing things. Someone told me this morning that it's if you, for instance, live in a household with two people and file your income as singles. Well, now, let's see what exactly what this person said. I didn't think it was the case, but anyway, here it is. He says, if you have... Uh, if you're married and you file your taxes together, you won't be eligible for the GST rebate or what they're calling a grocery rebate, which gets nowhere near long-term uh, relief for Canadians. But my understanding last year is if you were eligible for the GST rebate period, regardless of your marital status, you got the check. Wasn't that the case? So here's the numbers. $467 for eligible couples with two children. 
$234 for single Canadians without children and $225 for seniors. So that's all inside of Bill C-46. So here's the eligibility criteria for those of you who get GST. It's going to be issued automatically to about 11 million people, household income $38,000 or less, and individuals make $32,000 or, or less. So you had to file your taxes, of course, and the money's coming on the 5th of July. But correct me if I'm wrong. If you're one of the recipients or, say, for instance, a married couple and you only got one check, that's not how I thought it worked. Every single person who was normally eligible for GST will get this one-time bump. And, of course, they can call it whatever they want. You know, a bit of money coming in the door, fair enough. There's lots of people struggling out there. But where's the move, whether it be provincially or federally, to talk about long-term pain relief, especially when it comes to going to the grocery store for Canadians? But that's the issue so far as I understand it. You want to talk about it? Let's do exactly that. And, of course, for many, hunting for moose or big game is not just a hobby or an outdoor activity. It's a foodstuff. So now the results for the big game license draw is out. It's online. You'll get an email to remind you to check your account. Okay. Moose quota on the island, 27,575 licenses, including 3,930 non-resident and 450 not-for-profit licenses. Moose quota Labrador, 340 animals. Caribou on the island, 575. But, of course, caribou hunting still prohibited in Labrador, even though it continues, mainly by Quebec Innu. We can take that on. But the problem that many people talk about is just how many local licenses have gone by the wayside, yet there's been no reduction in the outfitter's licenses or out-of-province licenses. Now, some local residents may indeed use an outfitter if they've got those types of resources to spend that kind of money. But that's the problem people talk about, is, you know, for many locals, this is an important time of year to put some meat in the freezer. So when there's no reduction for the outfitter, and yet the locals see fewer licenses coming their way, that's a conversation we've had, and we're happy to keep it going if you are into it. All right. A couple of quickies here. So apparently the FFAW, had, through their efforts, have secured some compensation for fish harvesters on the southwest coast who lost, uh, uh, lost gear or equipment during Fiona. So some $1 million is going to come to bear, and that's probably a very smart move and probably required coverage. But that's the only piece of good news that I can see when we talk about some of the issues facing the industry. Yesterday at the very bottom of the program, the executive director of the Association for Seafood Producers, Jeff Loader, joined us live on the air. And the frustration was real. and He contends that the FFAW is willfully misleading their harvesters about certain things, including whether or not the association had made an offer to the FFAW. That was based on the sliding scale using the Erner-Barry index. Okay. Mr. Loader says it's simply not true. Uh, Here's some direct quotes. They issued a press release saying that ASP had made a counteroffer. That did not happen, and it's not true. That was based on a misunderstanding and outright fabrication that ASP had tabled an offer. That did not happen. There are no offers on the table from ASP. Okay. They had made their final offer, so says Mr. Loader, of they would continue to pay two twenty a pound for the entirety of the snow crab season versus if the market continues to soften, go back for reconsideration. So that's it. And they, pro- they officially withdrew that, even though they're obliged by law, if the harvesters go, to pay the 220 per pound, as set by the price-setting panel. Then they get into, they say the FFAW said that trip limits are off the table. Mr. Loder says that's not true. Then you go further on, and this is where it becomes pretty dodgy or dicey and potentially dangerous. So apparently some fish harvesters going for the crab actually left some ports last evening and were going for it. Some others were blocked at the port or at the dock 
by other harvesters who want to see the solidarity of the widespread tie-up continue on. So the ASP says, of course, that's an intimidation tactic. I'm not on the wharf, hadn't seen any of this with my own two eyes, but if you have, feel free to talk about it. There's actually a harvester quoted directly in this news article I read, and he fishes out of Lumsden. He says he's got to get on the water. There's about $300,000 worth of crab that he has in his quota. He wants to go get it to make his little bit of money to pay his crew. Of course, acknowledging it's nowhere near the profitability of last year, which was extraordinary. So now the ASP says, here's another direct quote. We will listen to anything that comes back from the FFAW, but we will not be engaging for one more minute in a world where people are not laying out exactly what's happening in an open, honest, and transparent way to the people of the province. There's too much at stake. The FFAW, of course, to retort, they, says, they say what Loder's saying is not true. So the obvious mistrust or distrust between these two entities is very, very real. It's only about a month or five weeks ago where they were talking about collaborating to make sure that this snow crab season went as well as possible, and now here we are. So regardless of where you are on this issue, I think the most important one, look, I don't know who's misrepresenting what, but the intimidation tactics are something that hopefully will not present a dangerous situation, but might. Because emotions at this stage are obviously boiling over, to say the very least. So that's a topic that we can absolutely take on today, if you're into it. Okay, so we're continued sparring in the House of Assembly about the state of Frank Roberts Jr. High. The families who have been contacting me paint a very different picture than the government is painting. They talk about rat infestation, students showing up to school with uh, rodent feces on their desk. They don't have a cafeteria, so they have to eat in their classroom. If they left their snacks or a lunch in their locker, it gets chewed on by what they're saying are rats. The government says it's not a rat problem. It's a moist problem. Okay, yes, public buildings this time of year will absolutely, public and private, just any edifice may see mice coming around this time of year. But the parents talk about it's just patently unsafe. You know, seeing water coming down from a moldy roof being collected in two buckets day after day in their son or daughter's classroom. So they're actually going to rally at the school next Thursday, I believe, at 10 a.m. So the government says they've gone in and done a health and safety inspection, and the, uh, the building was deemed to be safe and to be healthy. The district goes on to say the government would, by no stretch, put students in an unsafe situation. But boy, oh boy, what the government is saying is not lining up with what the parents are saying. You know, children home with respiratory issues. Some children, this one family, the kid is too afraid to go. I mean, maybe much like yours truly. I don't mind admitting, not only do I get grossed out by rats, I'm a little bit afraid of them. <laughs> I know that might be a little bit, you know, bizarre for some, but some kids are just not feeling well, and some kids are simply not wanting to go back to school, given the conditions that Frank Roberts Jr. hired, despite the assertion from the government that the inspection passed in flying colors, apparently. So, anyway, if you're a family with a student at Frank Roberts Jr. High and want to talk about or react to how the government is characterizing the issues at the school, let's do it. Also, sticking with schools. Okay. So, we've been contacted by a handful of families talking about the fact that they're in their child's school, they will no longer be doing, any in this circumstance, any more Mother's Day activities. Okay. Apparently, it's something that's trending across the country. And so what they're doing? No Mother's Day activities where the children will be given some time in their, in their desk to put together a craft or to make a card for mom, right? Which has been a part of going to school forever and a day. 
Same thing with some Father's Day's activities, although not to the extent for Mother's Day. I get it. So now what they're talking about is replacing Mother's Day and Father's Day with International Family Day, which will be on the 15th of May, talking about different types of families. Different types of families have always been part and parcel with reality. Single-parent families, some families have two moms, some have two dads, right? We know what's going on. We understand it. So this is another example of trying to be inclusive by excluding things. For the life of me, I just don't understand why, if we do indeed understand the fact that there are families that are not the so-called traditional mom and dad, that we can add that, right? Do your Mother's Day activities. Do your Father's Day activities. And if you want to help paint the picture of reality, what some children's family life looks like, add it on International Families Day. You know, it's very much like what's going on at Memorial University with an error to include people by excluding the Old to Newfoundland. It just seems like a very backwards thought process to me. I'm all about understanding the measures of inclusion and the progress that needs to be made inside society to understand that we're not all the same, we don't all have the same families, but there's a way to do that while still incorporating what has been a normal part of traditional life. Yes, there are different types of families out there. We know it. We understand it. So let's do Mother's Day. Let's do Father's Day. Let's do Grandparents' Day. Let's do International Family Day. Whatever is needed for the students to have a well-rounded understanding of the differences inside their own classroom, good. That's a good thing. But pretending that Mother's Day is somehow offensive just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I might be too old school on this one for some people's liking. Fine. Call and talk about the issue. And no one's going to get mocked for their stance on any of these matters. But let's add stuff, right? Not take away stuff, especially in these types of really innocuous issues. Let's make a card for mom. So to end that portion on a more positive spin, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Certainly to my mother, my wife, my three sisters, all mothers, terrific mothers at that, but that issue is quite something. And also there was a different type of sound in the House of Assembly yesterday as opposed to the to and fro, the sometimes juvenile barbs thrown around by the members of the house. Yesterday, there was a bunch of mothers with their children, their young children, talking about daycare, presented a petition. Some of the pushback that I get a lot on that issue is that, you know, having a child is a responsibility of the parent, even though daycare has been part of it for who knows how long. So what people are having to resort to is taking Nan and Pop, in, for instance, to take on the child. Nan and Pop have raised their children Nan and Pop might be getting up there in years. Everybody who's ever stayed at home with a toddler knows it's a pretty tall task. Some children can be extremely rambunctious, we'll say. And then someone says, well, you know, maybe mom or dad have to stay home. Just look around. Just look at the state of the economy. Just look at the cost of living. To know that two people living in a household will need, very likely, unless you have a real extraordinary earner of one or the other, the husband, the wife, or one of the husbands or one of the wives, then People really feel the need to have to go back to work. And a lot of women's economic security comes with the ability to work. So affordable, accessible daycare makes all the sense in the world. But what doesn't make much sense to me is that, well, too bad. You can't find daycare, stay home. Boy, there's a lot of economic pressure on the vast majority of households. People want to work. Well, hopefully people want to work. So anyway, the, they presented the petition. We'll see where it goes. And actually mentioned the ode, and we could talk about that. The government is considering possibly looking at mandating that Memorial University include the, uh, the Ode to Newfoundland at the convocation ceremonies. And again, 
as opposed to taking things out, why don't we add things, right? Now, I think the university admits it was a mistake to do what they did initially by taking the ode out last year, as opposed to going through the rounds of consultation inside of collegial governance to come up with a better plan, as opposed to the backlash. And yes, it's not the biggest issue under the sun, but it is an issue for some. So that's something we can take on if you were into it. Bit of healthcare before we go. We talk about the fact that registered nurses working in the public sector are working alongside their colleagues who are working for private agencies, sometimes making double what they make, have full control of their work schedule. It comes with a cost. So there's been an examination across the country about how this is impacting different provinces. Okay. So let's just get a couple of numbers that might be of interest to you. In the city of Toronto, the University Health Net Network's nursing agency expenditures total $6.74 million in the fiscal year ending in 2022. Manitoba spent $3.9 million on one year to fill shortages uh, in Winnipeg alone. The tally for the entire province of Manitoba, $40 million. In Nova Scotia, $3.1 million in December for agency nurses. They budgeted the amount this year, $18.4 million. Notably, Quebec, private health care staffing agencies cost taxpayers almost a billion dollars last year, and since 2016, the province of Quebec has spent about $3 billion on these agencies. As a result, earlier this year, the provincial government in Quebec passed a bill that would limit the use of health care staffing agencies with the goal of banning hospitals from using them by the end of 2025. So and it's not just here, just like many issues inside of healthcare, it's not unique to this province. And look, if you are a private agency or a private agency nurse, no one begrudges, the op begrudges you the opportunity to do what you've done. If someone said to me, here, Patty, you can do the same job, I'll pay you double, and you work your schedule as you see fit, that's something that sounds pretty good to me. So I understand why people have made the move, right? For the obvious reasons. But if it comes with such an enormous cost to the public system, it's probably something that we have to carefully consider. All right, last one before we go. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? We've seen this happen repeatedly over the years where someone accused of a very serious crime, in this instance murder, has gone to the courts to make a plea for their lawyer to be provided and taxpayer funded. So not availing of the seasoned, experienced professional attorneys who have tons of experience in the world of sexual assaults and murder cases. So this guy who's been charged with uh, allegedly killing Chantel John more than four years ago, his name is Kirk Keeping, he went to the top court and the Court of Appeal yesterday turned him down. Look, this is the right decision. And I know some private attorneys who listen to this show that every time I bring this up, they will send me a message saying that I'm on the wrong side of it here. So be it. I'm probably on the wrong side of a variety, a variety of things. But when we fund legal aid the way we do, and they have the experience that they have, especially in these types of cases, where we cannot be uh, making judgments that says legal aid is inadequate, Right. Because that's what the, the result is. If we say, okay, yes, you can hire one of the notable defense attorneys, and you know some of the ones that I'll be thinking of, then we kind of chip away at legal aid, which is no good for anybody. So Mr. Keeping will have a legal aid attorney, and I seem to think that's the right thing to do. What do you think? All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Mayor Tiller. Mayor Tiller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, sir. Good, sir. Um, I had to, I got to chime in, Patty. Uh, as or if people don't know, uh, New West Valley and this region 
has always had a rich historical connection to the fishery. Uh, this year alone, we were expected to get about 18 to 19 million pounds of crab landed at the wharf here at Beatic Fisheries. And as we all know, that's, that's not going to happen this year. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And it's going to be a huge, huge economic and, and social loss to, to our region. And, you know, I think it's time that, you know, I, I know there's a lot of distrust between the FFAW and, and ASP. But I think it's time that they get, you know, if it means that the the, the Premier or the Minister of Fisheries, our own MHA, Derek Bragg, or, or the whole House of Assembly, if they all get locked in a room and, and try to come up with a solution to this, because, you know, we can't afford the province, and, and, and especially our area cannot afford for this fishery not to happen. I mean, we have plant workers, and we have truckers, we have the fishermen themselves, and it, it would it'd be devastating to this region if this doesn't happen. Agreed. I don't really, and I've said this uh, quite freely along the way, I'm not 100% sure what the government can and should do here. You know, the encouragement for both sides to get back to the table or the encouragement for them to find some compromise, uh, that sounds about right to me. Minister Bragg did try to suggest that the FFAW conduct a secret ballot to see how many harvesters wanted to go. But, you know, we do indeed tip the lid on Pandora's box open if the government gets too deeply involved directly in prices and price spats. Well, Patty, uh, we've seen the government uh, provide loans to the oil industry when there was a big protest in there with the, the offshore workers. There was there was uh, loans given to them. We've seen the mm-hmm. government provide loans to mines such as Flores Bar. So why can't the government provide? Uh, and again, maybe Patty, I'm being too simplistic. But if the government came out and said, "Okay, we're going to provide fifty cents a pound this year and bring up the price to two seventy. The fishermen go out and they fish it. Next year, the, the price-setting pattern comes in at, say, three fifty, for example. So the government says, okay, I loaned you $0.50 cents a pound last year. So instead of three we're going to take off that $0.50 cents a pound, bring it in to $3. You pay back your loan, and hopefully the market stabilizes so that we don't have to do it again. I don't. Is it too simplistic? Is it you know something that can't happen? But to me, I, to, to go out, I don't want people jumping through the radio at me and saying, oh, we're not giving fishermen or the industry any money no you're not giving it to them but if you can provide an interest-free loan at 50 cents a pound to get those people on the water to get the 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 economy going because what people have to realize is that any disposable income that comes from rural newfoundland is spent in the urban areas our disposable income is spent on you know your recreational vehicles your your trucks your your appliances your big uh, electronics and for the most part that's not spent in rural newfoundland that's spent in the big urban areas this is not just you know a, it's, it's a devastating blow to everybody I totally get it. And, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, there's more seafood offloaded in the uh, uh, St. John's Harbor than anywhere else in the province. So, look, this has a widespread impact, which is why I keep talking about it. I have no involvement directly in the fishery, and many people listening probably don't either. But this has a trickle-down or a multiplier effect, which will affect many people in different parts of the province, no doubt about it. And, Mayor Taylor, I get where you're coming from with the concept of a loan. I would just say this, and it's not about whether or not you're oversimplifying something, because any sort of suggestion to get this fishery executed is worth debating or discussing. The only issue that I might see with what you're thinking there is that this might be just the epitome of kicking the can down the road to have to experience the exact same kerfuffle next year. Oh, I, I agree, Patty. I mean, uh, in the long run, the market will dictate what happens to this fishery. I mean, that's a given. But if we can, and maybe this one-time thing to try and, and get us through a couple of years, hopefully the market itself will straighten itself out. But if the market dictates in the future that this is what the price is going to be, 
then, uh, well, again, you can't force the market to, to buy if they don't want it. It's the same thing as if we stop buying beef and, and Newfoundland as a whole or the country says, you know what, we're giving up red meat. Well, then that market is going to collapse. So if, if, the, if the world or the country or the market decides, you know what, we're not going to eat seafood anymore or we don't want it as, as much as we do, did, well, then we got to, we got to, well, I, I don't know what will happen then. But uh, uh, right now, to try and get us through a couple of years and to hopefully get that market stabilized, uh, I don't know. And and I'm just saying that if, if there's a lot of mistrust between the FFAW and, and the association, then maybe it involves getting some other people in with them. So, you know, maybe just to keep their heads cool and to, to mediate or to help bargain or to bounce ideas off. I don't know, Patty, but I do know that our region, my town and, and the regions around it, the towns around it, it's not going to be a pretty sight if this fishery doesn't open. I mean, it's a huge concern to to our council, and I know councils around this loop, the business people, everywhere I go, it's all people talk about. And, you know, it's it's good that we see our, our prime minister, or our, sorry, our premier and the minister over and promoting the hydrogen, and I'm hoping that that becomes a huge economic driver for this province. But I think it's time now that all that enthusiasm and all those ideas for other things be focused directly on the fishery and we have to come up with something to get this moving no argument there on the general point absolutely right there's something has to give but now when we find ourselves at the very public standoff that is a little bit more testy than ever than i can remember in years past regardless of species then what that path looks like how rocky it might be is i think they're it's right there laid to bear by both sides at this moment in time so where the solution lies and if your ideas are ones that can push us over the finish line here or get the crab out of the water fair enough works for me because there is an awful lot on the line i did uh, check in with some so-called industry watchers and publications they say historically if the market softens on crab for instance between uh, january and april then that does never points to the fact that it's going to improve there uh, after april so we are where we are with the market and i that's where i've been a little bit confused along the way here is a racket over price versus a racket over the percentage of the market price, where, which might have been a much more sensible starting point. Far be it for me to put myself into the FFAW's business. They'll do it as they see fit. But if the market can only pay what the market's willing to bear, then maybe percentage of price was a much more cogent argument that now they've latched onto a bit more than they did uh, at the beginning of the season. Uh, Mayor Teller, I'm with you, sir. I hope this gets going, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Patty, and good luck to all those involved. And, and whoever's got to get involved, let's, let's do something to get this done because the ramifications of this, Patty, is going to go far beyond uh, my little town and my region. No question. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. It's Mayor Mike Teller out in New West Valley. Want me to take him now, David? I just got a line number one. Good morning, Chris Facey. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Just want to call about the old Newfoundland. Sure. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not unhappy. I'm livid. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, my grandfather and my great uncles fought in the First World War. My grandfather was shot in Beaumont Hamill, managed to crawl back to across the, the lines and, and refight in the war. And yet, when he came back to Newfoundland at 65, he retired and was appointed by Sir Leonard Outerbridge to, to start the war, uh, Corps of Commissioners. My father and my uncle fought in the Second World War. Memorial was built in memory of the people who died and those who came home. And I don't believe anybody has the right to take that away from the Newfoundlanders. Now, 
we were in Newfoundland long before we were Newfoundland and Labrador. And you, uh, you go to St. Pons? I went to Pies 10th. Okay. Well, when we were when we were kids, we had a song at our school. We could sing the first verse and the last verse. We could, we could never remember the ones in the middle, like the Ode to Newfoundland. When I stand on a warm memorial in July and November, and we start to sing, I have never seen so many people solemn singing it. We only know the first and last verse unless we have the words and the chorus, obviously, and we sing it with pride and everything. And I'm very proud when I sing it, and I tingle to go up my back. And to think that a bunch of profs at the university or VPs made this decision. My understanding that, and I've written down this before, when a dispute came up before, Divine Timmons, I understand that the decision to take the Ode to Newfoundland out was made by a committee of eight VPs who are advisory committee. I stand to be corrected, but that's what I know. And Dr. Neil Bowes was on that committee. In fact, I would suggest that if you poll those people or found out, there's probably several people on that committee who may not even be Newfoundlanders. Now, that's no reason why they don't have their jobs and do what they do, but their involvement with the ode does not resonate like it does with a lot of others. Uh, the, this should have come back to the Board of Regents, and you, I guess the person you should call on that is Glenn Barnes, who's here and asks, were they asked whether the ode to, was to come out? To think that someone could make a decision to take it out of a convocation without their uh, presenting to the board is ludicrous. Now, let's go to Labrador. Yes, we are a Newfoundland Labrador now, and I think Labrador should be in there, either an adjustment to the ode or, as you pointed out, just the, the ode to Newfoundland, the ode to Labrador being put in as part of it. But to take it out is ridiculous. Uh, in my practice, I'm a financial planner, and I do a lot of work with uh, clients who are planning their estates, and I give recommendations of what to do, obviously, to the wealthier people or the people with no uh, children. And in the number of years I've been at it, we've managed to get donations in the $300,000 range to university for scholarships, et cetera, from clients. Some of it is already in place, some to happen. But I'll tell you right now, and I told Vianne Simmons in my letters, that as of the decision not to do it, I will have no more conversations with any clients about supporting Memorial whatsoever until this is reinstalled. And to hear Dr. Bowes the other day say that they were going to reconsider, they had many, many letters. It was in the news on your line many times over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks that this was all going on. I didn't have identification that my letters were accepted and received back with Divine Simmons. And to say that they have a chance, haven't had a chance to look at it is absolute crap. I think the members of the, that committee should grow, grow balls and make a decision that is in the best interest of Newfoundlanders and the supporters of the university. Interesting point regarding supporters. Like, I mean, I think this does speak to a lack of understanding of the historical significance of the ode to many, many people in this province. But what your point on supporters or alum would be, wouldn't that be just a perfect role for a robust alumni association or alumni club to play? In many universities across the country, certainly in the United States, they become boosters now 
not only athletic programs and scholarships, but they get a real say in some of these types of decisions, not in academic operations or what have you, but things like this. So that would really help, I think, Memorial University if you had, like I said, a robust, well-pooled uh, group of alum that had an official voice, they'd be able to use them as a sounding board, you know, and not they wouldn't have the ultimate say in anything, but they would indeed be part of the conversation. We really don't have that here. There's a fairly thin, loosely run uh, bunch of alum who try to do this, but unlike many universities, like, you know, you travel around on the mainland, and certainly once again in the United States, on the weekends, the alum, what are they wearing when they go shopping? They're wearing their Harvard sweatshirt. They're wearing their UAT t-shirt. It's just a big part of uh, university life, post-university life elsewhere. Not so much here. No, Patty, I sat on the board for two terms. I was an elected member of the Board of Regents back when Eric May was here. And we had an awful lot of say in what was done and what wasn't done. Glenn Barnes is chair of the board. I think you should call Glenn and ask him, was he aware of the decision back last last uh, convocation that, that they pull the Ode to Newfoundland? I understand from sources that the chancellor was not aware of it happening. We'll see what we can do to get uh, Mr. Barnes to offer comment if he's so inclined. Okay. All the best, Dad. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Patty. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to discuss whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Uh, Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Can I ask you if, if Patty was your Christian name or, or was it Patrick? I'm Patrick. I've been long Patty because my father was a Patrick as well. Okay, because uh, Patrick has more gravitas, right? <laughs> well, you know, it, it just happened organically with me. Now, people call my father Pat for the most part and not Patrick. But since I've been a child, that's what everybody has called me, uh, except for a couple of members of my family. But it's long been that. I actually, it's funny you say that, Charlie, because there was a number of years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I thought to myself, maybe I should start introducing myself as Patrick. And it just never took, <laughs> never latched on, <laughs> just people kept calling me patty so that's that i suppose once, once a patty always a patty there you go and i don't know about more gravitas with chair with patrick to be honest with you oh okay <laughs> <laughs> just just a couple of quick things S- on, on says the guy says the guy call himself charlie as opposed to charles uh, oh don't you okay <laughs> uh, on your legal aid thing i completely agree with what you're saying there uh, i won't go into it you've already explained it but uh, I, I i'm glad you stated that uh, the other one um, on the union thing, it seems like there's a split in that union. It seems like w- one of the uh, head guys, Jason, wants to uh, hold off and the other fellow would like to settle. Uh, this this is a pretty tragic, uh, I, 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 tragic is not the word, no, devastating uh, thing that's happening to, to our province, and uh, I hope to hell they can settle it. As you said earlier, <laughs> the price is not going to go up. The, 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 the market is, is, is being uh, 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 not flooded, but people are fishing, and uh, 
uh, crab is going into the market. So how the hell is the price going to go up now? You know, but anyway. Well, and I'm not an industry expert, but I did reach out to industry watchers, look at some historical data, and it's quite clear. If the price or the market softened between January and April, then it never rebounded. So, and oh. the market actually softened already during the first three and a half weeks of this crab season. So, you know, when the ASP said, we'll, we'll stay with 220 for the entirety as opposed to 21 days, I think they recognized that, you know, had the, uh, the union said, okay, let's go back and fish for 220 for the next 21 days, which comes with a, a couple of caveats, trip limits and for, for starters. But, you know, it's percentage of the market share might be an easier argument to make or to understand. So the standoff is pretty contentious now. I don't know where we go from here. I'd say the, the bulk of the, uh, the fishermen would, would, would start uh, immediately. Uh, uh, Jason Sullivan and a, few, and, and a few others uh, are, are fairly well-to-do as far as I know, and perhaps, perhaps they feel they can haul off longer. But anyway, it's devastating to the province. But uh, the, the main reason I called was I watched Elon Musk on uh, the Bill Maher show a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he said, and I almost fell off my chair, he said, uh, the world could uh, use uh, many more people. And I know Bill feels on that, so he challenged him a little bit. But when he mentioned, when Bill mentioned the lack of resources, that we don't have enough to service uh, the people we have now, or it's not distributed is another problem, not distributed equally. But anyway, uh, uh, Musk said, no, don't worry about that. We've got plenty of resources. And I thought about, here's a brilliant guy and has come up with a lot of uh, brilliant uh, projects and so on. But you talk about a blind spot. So they mentioned desalination. There's plenty of water because, I mean, the most of the surface of the earth is covered with uh, water, right? Desalination, I don't know if he knows anything about it or not, but I've, I've done a little bit of reading in the past. Israel has uh, developed some desalination plants in a few other countries. Desalination is not the answer. You have, to, you have to add chemicals to the water. There's several chemicals to prepare the water, to take the salt out. This is, as you know, salt water. And then when it's taken out, the byproducts, of course, are brine plus, plus those chemicals. These have to be dumped back into the sea, and uh, that affects the animal and plant life, of course, where, where, where this happens. But to top it all off, uh, the huge energy costs associated with desalination, uh, these are out of the ballpark. I mean, if it was so easy to do that, Saudi Arabia and a lot of these other dry countries would have uh, been into that like crazy, you know. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not. Well, I mean, at the world just cleared eight billion as the population of the planet. Uh, the thought that more people are needed or required for what reason, I have no earthly idea. But like many things that uh, that fellow says, I can't make heads or tails of. You know, we've got a problem. There's there's going to be so many parts of the planet that are going to be uninhabitable simply because yep. of a lack of uh, biodiversity, with water, with heat. So that thought is either way over my head or it's not worth talking about. Well, it, uh, he, he seems to be into technology, and a lot of people believe that technology can solve everything for us. And as you know, technology in all areas has been a double-edged sword. Atomic energy uh, for peaceful purposes or for making a bomb, and you can go on and on. The last comment I want to make is if you look at what's happening out in Alberta right now, uh, fires already, I think there was over 70, many of them uncontrolled. 
and in uh, record flooding in some areas out in, uh, I think it's the Yukon, uh, I'm not quite sure of the areas there. They're already talking about every 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 year we start this we start talking about records being broken, dozens, hundreds of records being broken. But I bet you'll never hear from uh, uh, the conservatives uh, uh, out there or uh, their leadership that there's any relationship to 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 the climate. It's always uh, we'll subsidize you and so on. They won't make a mention of that. Isn't isn't that kind of ironic? Not really. It's kind of been the playbook. Um, you know, and people will, you know, let's say Fiona, for instance, that if someone said, well, climate change caused Fiona, well, what climate change has done is changed the environment and the atmosphere and the uh, the issues that may, might make for warmer seawater, consequently longer, more prolonged, severe storms, but might see the dry conditions that will lead to the prevalence of wildfire. They're fighting 81 fires in the province of Alberta alone right now, and here we are just in May the 12th. So it's the conditions as opposed to just, say, draw a straight line, because I think the science is, e- even the science says it's a bit more complicated than that, but the conditions have changed. Look no further than the Insurance Bureau of Canada. If people think that things haven't changed and don't want to talk about science, well, it's talk about the amount of claims that have been filed for natural disaster related matters over the course of the last 10 years the numbers if you care to look for them are unbelievable the amount of claims made for fire for flood for storm damage is different than it ever has been so people can uh, draw their own conclusions as to why that is but the money doesn't lie well i walked into my greenhouse this morning and it was probably 10 degrees higher than outside to me, the science has always been fairly simple, uh, not, not simple to get across to people. If you put, if you put chemicals, if you put, uh, I'm sorry, carbon dioxide, methane, and the other gases into the atmosphere, the sun's rays go through these, but the heat rays that come from the earth will not pass through very easily. It's, it's the same as the plastic on the greenhouse. This is so simple, a concept, and yet people try to make you believe that it's, it's not man-made, it's natural cycles. I, I saw something by, by uh, Rex Murphy the, the other day, and uh, he, he, the same old line. He did say one thing right, one thing I'll agree with. He said, they're, they're hypocrites. They'll talk about it, but they're, they're not really inclined to do much about it. Now, now that's one point I'll, I'll say he's right on, but anyway. Uh, that's about it for me, uh, Patty. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Thanks for this. Okay, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take one uh, as discussed, David? Okay, let's go to line number da, 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 line number four and say good morning to the uh, 2019 Mount Pearl Frosty Festival Rising Star Award and the 2022 Music on L Newfoundland Talent First Place Award winner. That's Mackenzie Critch with a debut single dropping today. Let's go. Line four. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? I'm doing great today on this sunny day. <laughs> yeah, look, the sun really makes us all feel a little bit brighter inside and out. So, Mackenzie, yes. is it today that your debut single drops? Yes, it's today. It came out 1.30 this morning. Fantastic. What's the, what's the title? It's called 03, like the year 2003. Love it. Uh, very quickly, before we get into what you're up to today, is for everybody who chooses to make music more than just a hobby, but potentially a profession, what's your first exposure to music? Like the person who made me a lover of music probably more than anybody else was my Uncle Steve. How about you? Um, I always grew up around music. My parents always had music playing, whether it was 
the Irish Newfoundland show or Willie Nelson. Um, just always, it, especially in Newfoundland, I'm always been surrounded by music. So I guess I don't have one moment in particular, but just waking up, smelling the bacon and hearing um, the Irish Newfoundland show definitely was one of my first. Fair enough. And as a child, right into vocal lessons, piano lessons or what have you, like we did when we were kids? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I I was I did vocal lessons too as well uh, for about I'd say twelve years I think. Yeah, I can always remember the days where I'd be pulled out of the street hockey game to go to my piano lessons. Ugh. Anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Okay, tell us about the process for writing this tune. What do you want people to know about it? Where can we find it? Those types of things. Yeah, so I wrote this song kind of all about the experiences that you have between the ages of like 17 and 20 and that's all about kind of going to George Street for the first time and uh, you don't tell your parents you have a fake ID but we all know that you once had one (laughs) so I decided to write a song about it and that kind of taboo topic that not many people talk about but it's, it's a very crucial part of the teenage world yeah, and you know, I don't even know how to ask this question, but the teenage world is different for this group of teenagers versus my era of teenagers or Dave Williams. And I guess in large part, you know, times are changing and our awareness of what's mm-hmm. going on around us is changing. But even the pandemic has made things just so weird for so many. And I would absolutely include young children and the formative minds of teenagers. What does it mean to you and your friends? Um, I guess one thing that has changed with me and my friends is that we've all kind of connected more deeply with each other through not just face-to-face but face like facetiming and you meet i've met so many new friends all across the province through music because of the pandemic and kind of the virtual world so it was definitely a blessing in disguise to uh for me as a musician because i got to connect with so many people and now that i mean is music going to be your career you're going to be a professional musician I'd love to someday. I'm in Mun as well doing English, but I, music is definitely the dream. And if it keeps going well, that's something I would love to pursue. Yeah, and now with the pandemic, quote unquote, over whatever that really means, the chance for professional yeah. musicians to get out in front of their fans is just going to be the hope for the rebound. Because even the way you sell your music has changed so dramatically over the years that you know live performance and selling swag is how most of the, most of them make a living, unless you're one of the international superstars. Give us a how would you describe your music, whether it be the way you write and perform songs or your overall sound? How do you describe it? Um, I I would describe my music as very storytelling, whether it's about my life or a concept that I've heard in a book or on the news. I love to tell a story through my music and kind of connect with my my supporters and my fans so that we all kind of feel one, especially like you said, with the pandemic, we were all kind of distant. And now with my music, I like to connect everybody and tell a story about what's going on in my life. I think storytelling is one word that I would definitely describe my writing. I love it. And that's an important component of it, as opposed to just trying to come up with uh, catchy hooks. You know, telling yes. real story is still popular for a lot of music lovers. And Mackenzie, where can people find O3? Uh, It's on all streaming platforms, uh, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your favorite songs. So, yeah, be sure to check it out. Knock em dead. Thanks for this and good luck. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Here we go. There's a young talent dropping her debut single. Let's take a break. When we come back, we talk about learning about civics. 
decision making. And you know, some of that is not part of the curriculum, generally speaking, in the K-12 system. The mayor of Torbay, Craig Scott, spoke to a bunch of grade fours about it. We'll hear about that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six to get more into the town of Torbay. That's Craig Scott. Mayor Scott, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent, sir. Thank you. How about you? Uh, not bad. If I could split myself into three pieces, I'd be all right. Yeah, you know, I feel the same most every single day as well. So tell us about your visit with the Great Fours. Well, it's all part of our Municipal Awareness Week campaign that uh, the town has been doing, promoting what it is that we do as a town, our staff, our our uh, services that we offer. And we reached out to the school. So in particular, Holy Trinity Elementary, we had three classes yesterday of uh, grade fours come by town hall, so it was 65 students. And uh, we have two classes today, Councilor Pollard is there with them, and uh, we offered them an opportunity to come into the council chamber, do a debate, and uh, ask questions of of me and and, uh, staff and and find out what it is that, uh, that we do. And so what did you tell them? And, you know, sometimes what I I, I was going to say I dislike, but I don't see how and why people think that we have to really dumb things down for younger children or speak to them in baby voices, what have you, because they're a little bit more in tune, a bit wiser, a bit more sponge-like than we give them credit for. So how did you describe the process to the great force? Well, first thing I did when, when we were going to have a debate, I just gave them some advice on, it, on debating and, and uh, told them to make sure that, at all times be respectful to the person you're debating against and uh, you know debate the issue and not the person and just those couple things and and they actually had uh, good topics they wanted to debate the first one was about allowing bicycles and uh, skateboards skateboarders on the skate park at the same time and they debated that talking about the safety issue so I I, uh, I don't talk down to them I try and and uh, communicate with them i guess on on their on their level but not uh, about issues that are not important to to them and to anybody really yeah talk about where they are right there's a long way with the uh, condescending versus understanding and trying to talk about things that are you know probably front of mind for them so that was a good topic that you brought up for their eventual debate what was the what was the hope? Actually, let me start with this. What was the uptick? Were they all ready and willing to listen and ready and willing to debate and actually try to absorb or incorporate some of your thoughts? They were, and they had, and they had a lot of questions. So I, I gave them an opportunity after they did their debate and for everybody to have some input into it to ask questions of me. And, and they asked me about uh, what does the mayor do? Can you make laws? Um, you know, uh, what about the litter in the town? So they they were bringing up some really good topics. Now, one kid asked me, came up to me, he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. Can you lower taxes? So I guess he was talking to his parents before he came to the, uh, <laughs> before he came today. <laughs> so well, I thought that was, that was quite, uh, it was, it was funny. And, and you know what? Um, I, I explained to him after when we went outside, and, and this, is, uh, this is also pretty good because we go outside, we had a fire truck there and a loader and, and some other things and some of our staff. And uh, they were asking me questions about, like, how much does this cost? You know, and, and I explained to them, I said, you know, that loader costs as much as a house, and we need to get a new one every seven years. So when you go back home, you can tell your parents that's where your tax money goes. That oh, yeah. Thing, right? So, you know. <laughs> 
So how did this come to pass? Did you invite yourself or the teacher invited you in or what happened? Well, I guess usually we we uh, used to do mock council meetings with the uh, with the grade four classes in particular. We'd bring them into the town hall and we'd do a, we'd sit them around the council chamber and and they do they do a mock council meeting. But, but this year we wanted to try something new and, and we allowed them to uh, pick a topic and and have a debate and and it was actually quite good. I set up two desks in the council chamber for them and and the two people debating sat there and and the rest of the class sat in the chairs and listened to them and offered suggestions and so I think they uh, they really did enjoy it and uh, you know I'm looking forward to them them coming back and we still got a couple of contests that we're finishing off for the for municipal awareness week one is mayor for a day contest and that's at juniper ridge grade five to seven are competing in that one and we have another one that's uh what does a mayor do and uh a mayor drawing contest i can't wait to see those pictures coming in but uh you know that's it's interesting for those kids to be able to do that and we try and and incorporate lots of things into the schools. Our New History House Museum, for instance, we're running programs there all the time for students to come, and I've been getting great feedback from the teachers about how uh, how they enjoy going there, and, and it's only a walk. They don't have to take the Aka bus and go to the rooms to go to a museum now. We can do it right in our own town. You know, when we talk about civics, did you talk about what the town does versus what the province does versus what the federal government does? For instance, right at Holy Trinity Elementary, it's not a town issue. It just so happens to be in the town of Torbay. So any little breakdown about, you know, here's what the town does, here's what the province does, and not fully and comprehensively because it'll take a year to, to, to flesh it all out, but any broaching that subject. It is, and, and I think that that's, that's, that's another important point because a lot of adults in our town or around the province don't necessarily understand the difference between the responsibilities of the municipality, the province, and the and the federal government. Because I get a lot of inquiries, phone calls, for issues that are provincial or even federal. Because I think because I'm easy to get a hold of, and many councillors across the province are the same way. They're your friends, their neighbours, people in the town. They know how to get a hold of you. They, they phone your house or they can get you probably easier than they can get an MHA or an MP sometimes and ask you to uh, look at this or look at that and, and advocate on their behalf. So I think that uh, it's important to try and distinguish exactly what it is that we do and uh, you know, they they uh, they were interested. They asked, "How often is an election, and uh, how do you run for election, and who can vote, and and all these things?" And and uh, I think that that the credit has to go to the teacher, certainly at the school, that are preparing them with this information before they come over to the town hall and. and uh, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a great experience. Nothing better than a curious, inquisitive young mind. Uh, Craig, good to have you on the show. Or pardon me, Mayor Scott, good to have you on. And uh, congrats <laughs> on doing this. Hopefully more municipalities take it up as well. Thank you, sir. And I'll be talking to you, I'm sure. Look forward to it. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. It's Mayor Craig Scott in the town of Torbay. Very quickly, if you were at Bowering Park last Sunday at the soccer pitch, there was a buddy of mine, he lost his, or he left his sunrise vest jacket with a pair of sunglasses in the pocket. If you picked it up, I know who owns it. Give us a shout, we'll connect you to uh, When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, Gus Etchegary, topic regarding home dialysis, the fishery again, and then many other topics, and they're all up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say more to the executive director at COD and LS, the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing very well on this bright, beautiful, sunny Friday. How about you? I'm doing well as well. And I'm really excited today to really be able to speak uh, to your listening audience about a um, I guess the results of the survey that our public has uh, been great and responded to some months ago, and also the results of those survey, that survey and what that's meant for a media campaign that we're just launching. Okay. Um, so I'd love to say thank you, firstly, to the people of the province. A number of people, uh, just about a 1,000 people, in fact, responded to some surveys that we did somewhat a while ago. Um, and in that number, nearly 500 people who identified being a person with a disability uh, responded in the survey as well. From that information, we were able to really... Um, get some answers to some questions that we were asking, wanting to know about the realities of people's lives, uh, you know, experiencing uh, the lives that people are, are living as persons with disabilities in our province, and also getting an understanding from the general population about, um, you know, barriers that they have, um, understanding disability, the way, the, you know, what they, what they typically understand about disability and services. And... Um, we're really excited right now because that survey information has been used to form a media campaign that we just launched this week. And I'm going to give you a heads up that the campaign I'm speaking about is going to be at breakingbarriersnl.ca. Uh, so folks can certainly look to that. But right now we've got uh, a number of TV ads, too, in fact, that are running right now on our local TV stations. And we've been more than uh, blessed to have a, um, not only a local uh, celebrity, but a, a real Canadian icon, uh, Mary Walsh, uh, become the spokesperson for that campaign. And Mary's got a, an ad of her own uh, that you know we've been featuring on, on TV right now. It's also available uh, at BreakingBarriersNL.ca, as well as on our YouTube channel. And uh, in that um, space, Mary identifies as a person with disabilities herself, and, uh, and, and she's just been a great spokesperson for this campaign. You're lucky to have Mary. What are some of the key takeaways that you want people to understand? Because unless you are living with a disability, you probably don't recognize some of the barriers or hurdles that are out there. So what do you want people to know? Well, this campaign actually points to that. So the idea is that what we have are a number of individuals who are identifying with, with disabilities of their own. And then the campaign um, provides opportunity for folks at BreakingBarriersNL.ca to have tools uh, to, to see disability, to understand disability better, and then tools, uh, resources that are available uh, to help them in their spaces. So some of the resources that we have, uh, we talk about uh, funding for accessibility, for instance, and many of these are, are links to different uh, forms and different resources and things that already exist in our province. We have tools listed under the uh, resources page uh, for self-advocacy tips. We have some letters there so that if a person wants to be able to advocate for themselves, we've got some uh, tools there. We've also got a, a sample letter so that a person can kind of learn how to write their own advocacy letter and guide you through that process. We've got information about education, employment, building codes, communication disabilities, all types of disability, uh, sensory disability, mental health, transportation, all kinds of things. So there's information on this site that's intended for the general population, for persons with disabilities to really find resources to make change in their lives and in the lives of those around them. 
Is there an interactive component so that people can, you know, not only absorb or read the information, but react to? Um, I guess yes and no. The, the only way you can react directly is to come back to us at the coalition. And, of course, our communication information is, is listed on the site. Um, but we also... Uh, make direct uh, contact with the directory of disability organizations in our province. So if a person has a question about a very specific disability type, the information is listed there, the, the resources or the, I guess the organizations that are found in our province that can really address that need. And we've got an amazing network of organizations in our province. So you know, that information is all available on this site as well. If a person is a, a wondering about certain type of disability, you can actually find uh, many those answers on this uh, on this directory um, and I will say that if people are looking for information that they're not finding here we really want to hear about that we want to be able to make this a place where people can actually get the resources that they need to break barriers to make change uh, for themselves and also for their community how do you want government to hear this? Because it's one thing for me to have a better understanding, which I try to do, and other members yeah. of the general public, but how do you want this to resonate in the minds and the hearts of the 40 members of the House of Assembly? Uh, Penny, I think that you know we've been, uh, along with many of our organizations, championing this. Uh, we have been very vocal with all of our government departments for such a long time, and we're not seeing significant change in that space. Um, you know, we certainly get some change, but we're not, we're not seeing what we need. Uh, we have real questions around funding, for instance, to enable our organizations to really contribute and to provide the information that is needed in our province. So I think that the best way that our government is going to hear is by when people with disabilities actually are empowered to rise up and represent themselves. And that's why this self-advocacy piece is so important in this campaign. It's empowering people to really speak for themselves, to be able to advocate and also for the general population to recognize ways that they can support their brothers and their sisters and, and the people of this province who are persons with disabilities. 25% of our population are actually persons with disabilities in this province. And that's the Canadian average as well. That's a pretty significant number. And when I talk about disability, as always, I mean that from a disability lens that is not just a disability that you can see. We're talking about disabilities uh, of every type, mental health, communication, uh, sensory disability, um, neurodiversity, the, the list goes on and on. But I believe that this is an opportunity for us as persons with disabilities and for us as a community as a whole to really learn more and to be able to advocate and, and um, be very vocal uh, in, in our spaces. And if that group of 25% of our population rises up, that's a pretty significant number that our government has to hear. Uh, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, not only is it the right thing to do to understand and to offer accommodations, but you're part of the economy. So for businesses, you know, they should also pay very close attention to this because if you alienate some percentage of or the entirety of 25%, your bottom line will also reflect that. A very quick question on a specific one. And, of course, part of this issue might include transportation. So the Go Bus issue has been a real problem for many. They've changed it from you know, uh, saying that you might get a ride and then consequently you might not to be putting on a wait list or what have you. There are big shortage of drivers, even though this has been contracted out to a third party, which I don't understand. Any changes in the works or have you, do you have an update on that front, Nancy? 
I can't say that I have an update as such. And again, I, I default to, to GoBoss and the MetroBoss for that. But I did uh, see, I believe it was yesterday, maybe the day before, uh, that there is a consultation of sorts happening, uh, reaching out to the community of persons with disabilities specifically to learn about uh, you know the, the challenges that are being faced and really talk about ways going forward. So I certainly welcome that. Uh, as always, you know, again, we've heard it said over and over again, nothing about us without us. But it's really important that uh, the community has, has an opportunity to really relay to GoBus and to MetroBus the, you know, the challenges that this represents. But as I said before, um, GoBus is, is supposed to be an opportunity for equity for transportation for persons who can't use traditional uh, public transportation. And we're absolutely not seeing this in the example that we have with GoBus right now. Um, so we need to make some changes. I don't know what those changes are, but uh, you know, I believe that you know, persons with disabilities have every right to uh, access public transportation, just as somebody who does not have a, a, person, a disability. And right now, that's just not available in our province. I appreciate the time, Nancy. What's the website address one more time? It's breakingbarriersnl.ca. Thanks for this. I'll be sure to take a look. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Nancy Reed, Executive Director at CODNL. Let's go. Line number seven. Tolson Randall, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning, Mike? Nice comment. You? Well, goodbye. Thanks. It's good. a beautiful morning, Patty. It's cool but nice. Yeah, you know what? I'm one of those, like many more, that listen to the program. You give me 18, 19, 20, I'm all set. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but anyhow, I just want to call you, Patty, let you know the time of the year is getting handy again for the Janeway Telecom. And as you know, over the last three years, I guess we haven't been able to have much uh, in regard to fundraising. So I'm finally getting back on track with a, a good buddy of mine from Carboneer, Terry Pins Music. He's helped me out with a Janeway fundraiser uh, this week, uh, actually tomorrow night at the Hearts Content Rec Center. What's going on? It's a fundraiser dance. In, it's, actually, I just want to run something by you quickly. The Janeway this year will be celebrating 39 years, and I'll be celebrating 35 as contributing to the fundraiser event. Good on you. Uh, the fundraiser, Tony, uh, uh, Patty, it's in uh, regarding a lady, uh, the pony I used to do the ride with. I, I told her one time, I said, if anything happened to you before me, I'll continue with this. But if anything happens to me before you, I don't know what will happen. But anyhow, here's where we go. A fundraiser dancing ladies' memories for the Tulsa Randall Project. And as we're at the Hearts Content Rec Center, Wednesday, Saturday, May 13, 2023. Starting time, 9.30 p.m. Music by, as I said, Terry Pins Music. And the admission at the door is $10 single. Now, you can't get much for 10 bucks, but when you can feel you're contributing to the children of Newfoundland and Labrador, I think it's a wonderful thing. Come show your support. There'll be door prizes, uh, 50-50 draw, and special draws. And as I said, Patty, this is the last three years we haven't been able to do anything, so come out for a blast, you know, and enjoy, because this is what it's all about. We're trying to get back there to where we were at normal, if you want to go back to 2019-20, but I think it's time for people to loosen up a bit, but not too loose, you know what I mean? <laughs> I tried to do, yeah. <laughs> you got to have a laugh with it, boy, because a laugh goes a long ways. And in fact, Patty, i got to say this to you, to the public of Newfoundland, Labrador, Canada, and the world. A laugh is better than any medicine you can ever take. Absolutely. Uh, I'm all in for that one. But it is. Uh, I can tell you the truth. I've had dull days, and I've had bad days, and I've had good days. And you don't look at life overall. The way I look at it, it's 50-50. It's good days and bad. You're not going to have them all good. The sun is not going to shine every day. It's like the song Trooper got out there. Guaranteed. <laughs> We're here for a good time, not a long time. 
rolling with the punches is hard to do sometimes, but it certainly makes life a little easier when you can find out ways to cope with the ebbs and flows, the ups and the downs. Tulsa, good to have you on. Congratulations well, on Benny, your 35 One thing again, I just want to remind the people of Newfoundland and Labrador and all across Canada, wherever you're going to get tribute to the Janeway, it's Saturday, uh, June 3rd, and Sunday, June 4th. Appreciate this. TV. Keep up the good work, Colson. Thank you and all the best. You too, man. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Deanne is uh, in the queue to talk about a friend who's struggling with eating disorder and trouble finding resources. Don't go away. Go back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Deanne, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to call in um, to give a bit of an update, I guess. Um, I called in a few weeks ago about my friend who... Um, is struggling with an eating disorder relapse and was told to leave the HOPE program. Um, So we're three weeks in now, a little over three weeks, and she's had no services. Um, She's getting thicker by the day, losing weight by the day. Uh, She could die any day. Like, it's that serious. So if I remember correctly, she was told to leave the program uh, because she continued to lose weight, when in fact that's one of the obvious issues and symptoms surrounding an eating disorder, right? Yes, okay. and further to that, since I was speaking with you last, um, we've we've looked over things and, and talked, and we've realized that there was a there was a breach of standard of care, Patty, even before they told her to leave. Um, when she left the treatment center in Ontario when she graduated, it is written on her discharge uh, report that was sent to Hope to the Hope program. Um, that her vitals, her uh, blood pressure, her pulse, um, all her blood work, all those things were to be checked regularly um, by the HOPE program. And the HOPE program had agreed to do that. And they had done that previously before she went to home. Um, because, as you know, I mean, eating disorders, um, especially when it's in a severe stage, can cause a lot of medical instability. Um, and not once did they check her vitals. Not once did they check her pulse. Not once did they check anything to see if she was still medically stable. Uh, the whole time she was back, like she was back, I don't know, was it two months before they told her to leave? And not once did they check that. And it's on the discharge summary that that needed to be done on a regular frequent basis. So, like, we're actually looking now at, like, if the government doesn't want to listen because they, you know, the answers I've been getting are kind of like, well, you know, that's what she's saying happened. We need to find out from the whole program what their story is. And, like, here's my story right now. Um, objectively speaking, there is uh, there is grounds for a claim for negligence for standard of care. They have breached that duty, Patty. They have refused her treatment. They have aggravated her condition, causing it to get worse quickly, rapidly, which is so dangerous. They neglected to monitor her condition the way it was written on paper from the special specialized treatment program they were supposed to do. They have been negligent. And now she is three and a half weeks without services. And I swear to God, if she dies, they will be held accountable because I won't stop fighting and her parents won't stop fighting. So someone needs to answer to this. This might be a bit of a lame question. Who runs the program? Um, I mean, it's it's Eastern Health. Um, Kelly Maloney is the head dietitian. 
and it's and she has been the head of the pro, the team lead for the program um, since its inception, really, um, back in I guess 2005 around there. Um, and you know, Patty, it's no secret that Erica is not the first person to fall through the cracks of this program. We've known several ourselves. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't good points to the program. Of course there are. But it's a very um, narrow window that you have to fit into to get their services. And the reality is that window really only fits a small number of eating disorder patients. And if you don't fit into their cookie-cutter regulations, then you're, you're out. You just don't get services. And I- it, it can't happen. No, agreed. Many things, because when I'm not involved or I'm not privy to how these programs or policies are structured, it just does come across to me as absolutely counterintuitive. If one of the massive health concerns I have with my eating disorder is weight loss and then consequently potential for organ failure because of the weight loss Mm -hmm. and the lack of nutrients serving your body, Mm -hmm. that would be, to me, make you the prime candidate as opposed to the one dismissed. Like I just can't quite understand the starting point here. I think part of it, Patty, like it, it's a it's a debate that that seems to be happening, and it's happened for many years. And honestly, Newfoundland, I think, is behind the times on it. Um, so, you know, on one hand, they're they're quick to say that an eating disorder is not um, a lifestyle choice, which it is not. <laughs> an eating disorder is an illness. It's a mental it is illness. A mental illness, yeah. and it's a severe mental illness. Um, and nobody chooses this nobody so they are quick to advocate for that and at the same time they are quick to tell someone to leave the program because they can't control an aspect of it as if it's like it's a punitive approach and research has shown that taking a punitive approach with someone who is in the throes of anorexia makes their prognosis poorer there is research to back that up Um, The other thing is that, like, for example, tube feeding, that is something they won't do here. Um, I've lived in other provinces, and I myself, Patty, have had an eating disorder and have been on death's door from anorexia more than once. Um, And I lived in Ontario at one point when I was like that. And I can tell you that in any other province in Canada, she would be in hospital being tube fed right now to make sure she got the nutrients, to make sure she was kept stable until she could get strong enough to to eat herself um and newfoundland won't do that and yes there's some evidence so the research is kind of mixed on that some some evidence says that it makes the eating disorder patient angry and you know but there's also a lot of evidence to show that it's actually really helpful um so but in this case, when it's live or die, which is what we're facing now, I can't think of one province except Newfoundland where she would be sitting at home dying day by day, crying out for help and not put in and tube fed at least. Like I, I, I'm gobsmacked. I don't even know. Yeah, I wouldn't know what it looks like in other provinces. And the issue of some patients might be feeling angry, is that because the, the thought is that they're being force-fed? Yes, okay. yeah. And and again, like I think that, that goes to the individual case-by-case basis, right? Like there are 
people who in the, are in their illness and they're not ready to accept that help. Um, and they would feel like they were being forfeit. There are also people who were like I was when I was at that stage years ago. I went to the emergency room and asked to be tube fed because I knew how sick I was. I wanted to get better. And the eating disorder was so bad that I couldn't eat. Um, and that's where my friend is. She's asking for help. She's asking them. She's saying, I know it's out of control and I know I'm dying. Please help me. And nothing. Radio silence. You know, because we, we try to make the message, if you need help, the help is there. Now, there might be a lag in there. getting it. but Well, for some, that's absolutely the truth. And which is why it's curiously that we were talking about eating disorders specifically. It was Mr. Withers who, you know, told me one time, this is a number mm-hmm. of years ago, where we talk so much about you cannot get help. Also to include encouraging people to try to get help when they know they need it or their loved ones or their family know they need it. And in this circumstance, I just don't really quite understand it. I guess what Please. I can do. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, she's she's trying to get help, but you know what's happening is that every time she tries, she's just the doors are closed in her face. There's no help for you, and that is just it. It should be criminal, Patty. I'm not kidding, because that's killing her. I'm really sorry to hear this update. I do appreciate you telling me, but it's not, it's the furthest thing from comforting. I, I, wish, I, know, things, I, I wish things were different. Would you like to say anything else quickly, Deanne, before I have to go? Yeah, just just to whoever is listening with the government or Eastern Health, like we're not going to stop fighting. She's going to get support one way or the other. I appreciate the time, Deanne. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I don't understand that one. Like many things that come across our quote-unquote desk. Uh, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? Let's go ahead and try to get back on track with the breaks. Ben wants to talk about home dialysis, an option for many. And uh, Vic's there to talk about Gus Hatchigary. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number eight. Good morning, Vic. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Uh, today is May the 12th. Uh, I don't, never got a chance to listen to your preamble this morning. May the 12th, it's, uh, it's uh, International Nursing Day. Nurse Day? Yeah, and this is Nursing Week, that's right. In the world, so I certainly would have, uh, like to thank the nurses for all they're doing, they're the frontline workers, and I understand from what I read recently, I think our nurses here in Newfoundland are the lowest paid in, uh, I think, in Canada. So I think that's a sad situation. They should be certainly given more uh, uh, incentive to work outside. But I, from what I'm, I've, I've experienced on a personal note, when I did visit the hospital recently, the nurses looked very tired and overworked. So I think we need somebody to step up and get that changed. The other thing uh, I like to. Um, Express my condolences to uh, Gosiechi Curry family. I know he passed there a few days ago, and and the little I know about the fishery, I think, is some of the things I read that he has written. Uh, one of the books I remember, I think, was uh, Empty Nets. He he produced there. I think uh, I don't know when, probably ten years ago. But I know he's been in, involved in the fishery. I think since he's big enough to walk. One I understand. 
Now, uh, I know one of his uh, pet peeves was, I, I think he, he, did, he really worked hard trying to get the, uh, uh, I think, to get the uh, nose and tail of the Grand Bank included. And I think, you know, 200 mile or uh, the federal government asked to try to get the federal government to take over that jurisdiction of that area. Because I think it was a very, uh, from his knowledge, one of the most, I guess, important spotting grounds for the cod. Uh, I think, but unfortunately, he wasn't successful in that endeavor. But certainly, he was on many committees, and I think he, he was certainly, a, 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 well, I guess he was a giant among men, really, in terms of our fishery. Now, uh, ironically, I think he also, I think you had this topic on this morning, too. Uh, ironically, he was, I think, awarded the honorary of, of law, of laws, I think, from Memorial University. Uh, and uh, I think what I read recently, I think at his funeral a few days ago, I think in the beginning of the funeral, I think they read uh, uh, someone, I think they sang the Ode of Newfoundland because he was so, he was so, he was such a, a great uh, lover in uh, for Newfoundland. And uh, uh, it's ironic now that they're not going to include the Ode to Newfoundland in our uh, convocation here at Mon. And uh, I, I know it's a very hot topic. And uh, I myself, on a personal note, I heard Chris, um, Chris, I think, Facey on there this morning, and I certainly echo what he has said. Uh, I, on a personal note again, uh, my, fa- my only father's, uh, my brother, my father's only brother was killed in the Second World War. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was old enough to remember that. And uh, so the veterans are very close to my heart. And uh, I, again, of course, I think we have to remember, as Mr. Facey indicated, uh, our Memorial University was de- dedicated to the um, uh, First War veterans who had died in Mount Cam, Mount um, uh, Beaumont Hamill. Now, uh, I, I think you also had another person there this morning talking about uh, disabilities. Now, I think some of the first people I've seen with re- severe disabilities in my little hometown were First World War veterans. I remember a veteran with one arm lost in the First World War in Beaumont Hamill. Okay. I remember two veterans that one, uh, they, uh, they were blind in one eye, and uh, this occurred in, in uh, Beaumont Hamill. So I was very young then. So uh, and how I know I know they mentioned inclusion. I think uh, why they, they I think they were going to rewrite the old. But uh, I don't think we I don't think we need uh, we need to even discuss that topic. Uh, I mean I I really asked the people of Newfoundland uh, to put pressure on somebody to have that uh, old uh, reinstated immediately. And uh, I, I do. And you also had another person this morning talk about uh, music. Now I love music, and uh, I play a bit of music. And uh, on a person, my personal life, what uh, what I do when I get in the morning, I'm an early riser. I work in my lifetime, quite young. 
and I'm still active in certain areas, but I'm not working, of course. So what about music now, Vic? Sorry, or... Uh, so music, uh, just one, one person mentioned music, yes. Music is good for your mental state. It, it helps me, it calms me, and it makes me feel good. And every morning I get up, uh, I use it, I say a prayer, and then, of course, I play a bit of music. Uh, could I play the ode to uh, on your line this morning, just a part of it? Can you do what, sorry? Could I, could I, could I play? I, I played the squeeze bank a bit. So could I play the old, the old, the old Newfoundland to, to your public? Are you any good? Uh, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that for the public Newfoundland to judge and yourself. <laughs> but just one little verse. Uh, sure. Okay. Here we go. I think for the first time ever, some live music here on Open Line. I'll take it away, Vic. Vic, uh, while you were playing, uh, RCA Records call. We'll put them in touch with you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks a lot, Vic. All the best. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. There's a first. Let's take a break. Ben, appreciate your patience, sir. He wants to talk about dialysis at home. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Ben. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. I appreciate your patience. Thank you, sir. Uh, I got a problem with uh, dialysis, not dialysis, I've been on dialysis for a year now, but I decided that I'd, uh, we got approved for home dialysis. So anyway, uh, Health Science, Health uh, Healthcare put us up in, a, would put us up in a building behind uh, St. Clair's, and they would cover the cost at $45 a day. But in the meantime, I got a dog here, and they won't uh, let me uh, have the apartment uh, uh, because I got a dog. And uh, so anyway, I said, okay, that's all right. I said, what about if I went out and tried to get an apartment, one-bedroom apartment myself, would you cover it in? And they says, no. So I'm uh, between a rock and a hard place. I, I'm from the Cape Shore, Custard. I got two and a half hours drive each way. Every time I pull into the gas pumps, it's uh, sixty or seventy dollars, mm-hmm. and I'm running out of funds. I'm guessing that the uh, health authority has a, an arrangement or a deal with that particular apartment building for that cut rate of forty-five dollars, because right. you'd have. No chance of getting well for starters. Finding a rental unit around here is difficult uh, at the best of times, That's and really right. it's like hen's teeth these days. And the expense has gone through the roof. So, yeah, but, you know, I I, uh, I have a chance of uh, someone was offering me a, a place to stay for for that they would cover me for that month for for that time. It's uh, it's eight weeks, uh, uh, you know, training. It was six weeks training. 
So we do we do it at Selby Square in uh, Mount Pearl. Yes, that's right. That's where the unit is. Yeah. So it takes six weeks to learn how to properly and safely administer the home. I guess it's hemodialysis. Yeah. Well, we've been at it. Uh, we do an hour before I go on dialysis. I do dialysis twice a week now, and I go an hour before I go on dialysis, and I got to go four hours uh, every day or twice. Uh, you know, twice a week. So just so I'm clear, you do dialysis twice a week or every day? No, twice a week. Twice a week. When, okay. I'm, in, when I'm in training, we'll do it every day. Oh, I see. Okay. For five days a week. You don't have an option of family or a friend or someone can help dog sit while you get through this six weeks? No, sir. We got a dog here. He's worse than a kid. Uh, he wouldn't, he'll fret to death if he go with someone else. Oh, okay. He's only about 10 pounds and... Uh, <laughs> He's still sucking the blanket. <laughs> well, I wouldn't know what to tell you, so... The, the thing is, I can't get a hold of the social worker. Uh, I'd want to give her name over the, over there. But uh, we've been we've been calling now for over a week trying to uh, get in touch with her. She was, she's the one that uh, set it all up for us. But then now they're turning us down because we got a, an animal. Yeah, so, I mean, many apartments, whether they be in apartment buildings or basement apartments or what have you, it's harder and harder to find a place that's willing to accept pets, especially dogs. Now, there's a big difference between having a big 150-pound dog in a rental unit than your little 10-pounder. What kind of dog is it? It's a part Pomeranian. Okay. Is it Yappy? One of my buddies had a Pomeranian that wouldn't stop. No, no. He, He won't yap. Well, Ben, I wish I could point it to somewhere. Now, I do know people who are in the landlord or property management business who listen to the show, and generally speaking, when these types of topics come up, if they have something that can help, they reach out to me. So if anybody does contact but, uh, me... Well, I, you know, I have a place to stay. It's just that uh, what I don't understand is that they would cover me on a, uh, in those apartments behind St. Clair's, but... Uh, the person that uh, has the, uh, the the room for me was willing to go for that amount of money. Yeah, but the, the, the trick is with government is that they have to have people lined up as actual registered vendors. So uh-huh. I'm sure that's the hurdle here as opposed to, let's see, well, I can, I can get the room, but I need you to cover the rate like you were willing to with the building behind St. Clair's, but that building and their owners or property managers are already registered vendors, I'm going to assume, which is why they're probably not going to do what you would like them to do. But mm-hmm. I, I know where you're coming from. And once again, though, if... Wait now, there's someone just reached out to me and said that they have an Airbnb that accepts uh, pets, might be able to strike a deal with him. How about this, Ben? I'm going to put you on hold. I'll get you some contact information for this person, and it might be able to see if we can get set something up. I don't know, but they just reached out to me. How about that? Okay, it's word to try. Word to try. I'll put you on hold, and I wish you good luck. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Maybe we'll have to call him back because I'm going to have to wait for this person to give me the contact info. So if you can tell him that much, and we'll we'll call him back if we get the uh, information. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Harper Grace Port of Grave. That's Pam Parsons. Pam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and it's uh, beautiful to see the sunshine. It is. Finally, for the month that we just had. Uh, but I certainly wanted to call in and throw my support and add my voice to what, we, what we're seeing with fishery here in our province this, this season. 
And I mean, it's, to, to say it's uh, devastating is an understatement. I mean, as we know, and I mean, and as you know, we all know, it has a, a direct impact on our local economy down all through the, down the line. So, I mean, I know I have a lot of harvesters here in my district. I mean, Public Waste Port of Grave, we're known for fishing, the fishing activity here. Um, so, you know, I'm calling on the SSAW as well as the ACP, ASP rather, you know, so let's get, get to the table, get a deal. I mean, time is of the essence here. Yeah, you, you called, and I think you said call in support of. What are exactly are you supporting? Well, we'd like to see, I'd like to see them, get, you know, get, a, get an arrangement, you know, come to an agreement to get out there. We know harvesters want to get out. We're seeing, uh, you know, the blockades happening. We know some harvesters want to go, but as you know, um, until an official deal has been reached, I guess, for everyone, uh, that's not going to happen. And I mean, it's it's taken a, a top priority in the House of Assembly, as you know, day after day within our question period. And it's about time. I mean, we all want to see harvesters on the water. So let's find a formula let's, let's find that works for everyone so we can get out and get this fishery off the ground or literally under, under the water. If they, uh, if the harvesters are saying they do not want to, or well, I guess the solidarity of the union are saying that they don't want to fish and they will not fish at two twenty a pound. We know that's not true right across the board. Some harvesters have actually tried to go or have been in, blocked from going. But if the association has been quite clear and it doesn't look like the market's going to reflect any higher price, where do you think this actually lands? There's some suggestion that the government requires requires some more or additional government involvement. I don't even know what that really means. But what role do you think government plays here? Well, as we know, and I mean, and the Premier's been clear on it, as well as our fisheries minister, Derek Bragg. I mean, I know just from my conversations with them, they are on the clock, yeah, so rather on the phone, around the clock, working with both parties to try to try to find a resolution, um, you know, again. But I guess it's going to come to an agreement, that magic agreement that they're both going to, you know, that all parties are going to agree to. But, I mean, I'm having getting calls from constituents, constituents here. It doesn't just affect the harvesters. We know, Patty, we got plant workers here that are also impacted. And as well as all the other local businesses that rely, you know, indirectly on this activity, this economic activity. So, I mean, it is sad to see. We know the month has been slipped, is slipping away. Last year, it was a different story. And we know that every year when it's time to go fishing, it, it's like this. It's very contentious. You know, sometimes last year we didn't we didn't hear these problems. Everybody seemed to be happy. It was a lucrative year. But now this year, of course, it's the opposite. But we also know that the world markets are also playing a role here directly, as well as what's happening in the activity in Russia. I mean, it's my understanding that China, you know, they're getting, they're getting the product from Russia. Or that's certainly, and as we know, this is having a direct trickle effect right here in our own backyard, Newfoundland and Labrador. But um, I just want to—I really hope that parties can agree to get out and get this off the ground. Yeah, I think the the Japan issue, you know, probably represents maybe five to possibly ten percent of the catch. So we really are talking primarily about the white tablecloths in the United States. And I try to follow the market and understand the index applied. And for the life of me, I don't see things improving on price. So I don't know what that means for this ongoing standoff but it certainly isn't going to be helpful if the market softens one more bit and the ASP who have now found themselves wanting to and yesterday on this program putting it all on the table publicly then we might have a standoff where people are going to be willing to bite the bullet and see this entire season not be executed in part or in full which is going to be devastating Greg Purdy's not wrong when he says this is an economic bombshell because it absolutely is regardless if we're talking about $7.15 a pound or 220 a pound.
Absolutely. I mean, and I don't envy any any of the positions that these people find themselves in this season. But hopefully, you know, like you, like you said, it, it, it's certainly going to be devastating if this if we can't get this this season off. Uh, and on that note, too, I also want to send condolences, of course, and uh, to the family of Gus Echeguri, and you know, certainly recognize the contribution that he has made to our Newfoundland Labrador fishery. He was also recognized in the House Assembly this week in a member statement. Uh, but certainly want to send my condolences out to his family and loved ones, and to also. So send a big thanks for, you know, the contribution that he has made. But if I could, Patty, I know you've got a line up here today, and it's, it's come on with a Friday, as you say, but I also want to make a little announcement as well about our road work. I did a lot of constituents calling about the roads here, of course, in Harbour Grace, Port of Graves. But I'm happy to say that this year we're going to be getting the whole Route 70 through Bay Roberts, or our business district, going to be paved from the LT Stick Drive area right up and through and including up to Water Street there by Jungle Gyms, as well as we're going to have paving and repairs on the Port Grace Peninsula because those roads certainly take a beating in the uh, in the fishery every summer from all that all that all that activity but again unfortunately we're not seeing that this time around so far but i simply just wanted to add my voice and just say you know there's a lot on the line here there are so many people impacted uh, well, i'm getting called daily we're hearing it in the house assembly and i think uh, everybody we're all on the same page that we want to see this fishery off the ground for 2023 appreciate the time thank you Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Pam Parsons. She's the Liberal member for Harbour Grace, Port of Grave. And, of course, absolutely the fishery, one of the backbones of her community. Very quickly, and just in an effort to maybe improve the program services at the Eating Disorder Foundation, uh, the good news is we spoke with Paul Toomey the other day about the 50-50 and other things, and the pot continues to grow. It's over $1,600 now. So if you'd like to get in on that action and help support what they're doing at the Eating Disorder Foundation, simply call the office at 722 or send them an email. It's info at edfnl.ca. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll wrap up the week by speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number three. Good morning, Jasmine. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Jasmine. Hi there. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Here we are, Friday, steaming towards 12 o'clock, and the sun is shining. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Are you ready to talk about fish again? Absolutely right. Okay. Um, so I guess I should probably start and introduce myself a little bit. Okay. Um, my name is Jasmine, and I'm a fish harvester in Presentia Bay out of Arnold's Cove. Um, I'm a fifth-generation fish harvester, and I've been working now in the fishery as professional fish harvester since 2019, and I've got the history on both sides of my family. Um, so I'm an inshore small boat fisher, and we do crab, lobster, and cod, and that's what my family fishes. So it's me and my mom and my dad. Terrific. Um, so I don't really want to get into the stuff about the crab today because like as an apprentice um i don't have the same expenses as like to run a oh i'm really nervous just take your time take a breath or you sound great go right ahead oh okay so yeah i don't have the same kind of expenses um as an apprentice to operate the fishing enterprise and i don't have any kids or like a car or a mortgage so i don't think i can really speak to what we need to do like about the crab and stuff so i want to talk about like why i like fishing and uh know what my visions are for the future okay. and i have a few suggestions too let's hear them uh, yeah okay um <laughs> i thought i'd do better than this um well i guess first i'll probably just talk about like why i like to fish 
Um, I do it with my family, first of all, um, so that's really important to me. And I like being outside and working on the water. And I like, you know, helping contribute to people's like, food security. So it's nice to go out there and uh, catch fish and know that someone is going to be able to eat them and stuff like that. And uh, for my future, like, I hope that I can take on uh, the enterprise and become skipper. But I will want to run it a little bit different. Um, like, I'd like to have more control over where I sell. And I'd like to sell more directly uh, to the consumer and probably fish smaller and, like, um, try to focus on the fishery as a way to, like, help food security and, like, eradicate poverty and stuff like that. So more of a, like, small-scale fishery that suits the needs of the community so more than, like, you, a capitalist thing. What do you mean by that? So small uh, fish for less or go back to hand lining like they're doing on Fogo and finding the white tablecloth market for it? Or what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, like, um, smaller quotas but more value for the harvester but still in a range that, like, local people can afford to eat what we catch. Um, so we're seeing, like, I didn't want to talk about crab, but, like, with the prices of the snow crab, like, most people, when it gets to a grocery store, they just can't afford it. Um, so I think, like, if we could have maybe less quotas and more pay um, for the quota, then we can focus on having a market that's more local instead of exporting it, and that way we can feed, like, local people. I love it. You know, because by the time it makes it from the boat to the plant, through the distributor, and all the hands it touches, it really becomes an unaffordable luxury for many. And I always go back to the same one that I, I saw when I was in Florida one time, is the harvesters that year were getting in and around 75, 80 cents a pound for cod. I mm-hmm. walked into a grocery store in Florida, and it was uh, eighteen ninety nine a pound for saltfish. I mean, exactly. there's a long way between those two, and we know that a lot of people get their cut before it makes it to a retail market and a bit of exactly. counter space or freezer space. So direct sales has always been, you know, a really solid option. Now, I know we're allowed to do it in some form or fashion, but if we had more of it, an opportunity for fresh fish, uh, for instance, to be part of the farmer's market setups more exactly. than it is today, then we could probably make some strides. Yeah, for sure. So there are some barriers because I've been working on this quite a lot um, because, you know, I'm thinking about my future and, like, how I can make this fishery like become my career in a way that reflects, like, my values as, like, a conservationist-type person. Um, so, like, right now we have these regulations that surround the sale of fish at the wharf, um, but they're very unclear. Uh, so far as I understand, as an apprentice, I can't sell or even really advertise um, any of our fish products and we're definitely not allowed to do any kind of uh, like producing to it so it has to be sold whole um, or if it's crustaceans they have to be live and it has to be sold at an establishment and it's not clear what that means Mm -hmm. is that our boat um, but can we sell it out of like a shed Um, so there's lots of stuff like there I just don't know like what are the rules like what can we do like I had this idea like about Dickie D in St. John's with the ice creams like if I had a little fish bike or I could go around with a freezer on a bike and just sell out like my fish and deliver it to people because a lot of the people who really need to have a good healthy food option, they're seniors, they're low income, they're single parents, they don't have the time to go and find these healthy foods and process and prepare them and maybe they don't even know how. Um, so I think if we could do it more like that and like make sure that we're directly getting the food on local plates, like in hospitals, seniors' homes, in schools, that way we can shift our market to a local market because right now it pretty much all goes overseas and it would be better, I think, for the fish harvesters, the plant workers, and also the local people too 
Um, so that's kind of like what I want to get into, like how can we make these changes and like what are the barriers and stuff like that. And I also think we need an apprenticeship program. Yeah, we need to kind of change the way and the number of years it takes for people to get into a spot where they become uh, an enterprise owner. You know, there's yeah. there's some serious hurdles there for young people who may consider a life in the fishery. It's hard work. It's not for everyone. But if we make it more and more difficult and take longer and longer, then consequently, we know what the average uh, age is of a harvester or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. We know the average age of a plant worker. So making changes to understand what the future looks like makes all the sense in the world. And you mentioned yeah. putting it into schools and hospitals long-term care facilities, personal care homes. There's a massive campaign already ongoing about, uh, for instance, root vegetables. So I think it would be great for the Mm -hmm. folks at Food First NL or whoever wants to represent the harvesters in in part or in full to be part of that. Because can you imagine the delight of a resident of a long-term care facility or a patient at Sinclair's when the meal comes up that it's relatively fresh caught caught? I mean, they would be over the moon. We're finding out now that the best things for our bodies are the foods that our, our grandparents and stuff ate. And, like, I know firsthand, like, sometimes I'll be able to get a fish and bring it in to a local senior or someone I know. And they're always so happy to get that food that they're used to eating. So, like you said about, like, agriculture, we have a lot of great programs that's focusing on, like, helping young people get into farming. But if we could have that for the fishery, like, I'm very lucky because my dad was willing to sponsor me as an apprentice but for other fishers like it could be a big risk for them to take someone that they don't know who doesn't have any experience and then they also how will they pay them right so we see in like construction trades that there's subsidized positions available for carpenters electricians it would be cool if like skippers could get access to that too because they could train up someone and they wouldn't have to worry about how to have to pay them yeah, for an industry like every other industry on the planet, it's evolving. Markets are changing, but I'm not so sure we've done much to change, whether it be the structure, the governance, or the business model of the fishery. And maybe that should be as, as much part of the conversation as the annual spats over price and IQs and tax and all the rest of it. Because, you know, to move with where how the market is actually behaving and what, what would be best for the industry and best for young people and best for license holders, best for apprentices... That gets lost. That's on the sideline. Because what we really talk about is price. Exactly. And, like, if we had more options, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, You know, like, for me, like, if I had more freedom to take my portion of – because that's how it works, like, with the shares, like – the, the skipper gives his shares and the, the plants pay it to all the crew, but I have no choice. I can only sell my share to the plant. Um, so if I had some options where I could take a little bit of my share and like sell it to my friends, like I could have more control over how much I want to charge and it would just be like more options because young people, like they're entrepreneurial and they want to like try new things and the way the fishery is structured right now, it, it doesn't work for um, ingenuity, we'll say. Fair enough, and I'm glad that you made the point that you want to take some of your catch, not all of your catch, because we do have to ensure a thriving processing sector as well. Now, I know folks who promote outside buyers, and I don't dispute that that's a thought that needs more discussion. You know, you get more for the raw material, which makes a lot of sense to me. But 
you know, how we try to strike that balance, which I know is kind of like walking a razor edge tightrope to ensure that the harvesting sector is in good shape as well as the processing sector, because that's part of the economy. There's some 5,000 plant workers. So, you know, we can't turn our back on no. either or for the, you know, it's not a zero sum game, right? No, right. We need options. And I think that's what it comes down to. Like right now, like if we, if we, some people perhaps could go, like I've been dying to eat some crab. I've been like, couldn't we just put it one pot? And dad was like, well, you know, it's not really economical and with no one else who's going at crab like we shouldn't either but it would be cool if you know we had the options and like the way it is now of course we need to to go through the plants because that helps fish harvesters pay their taxes contribute to cpp and ei so it's not set up like other small businesses where the business owner gets all that stuff seen to like if they own a store or something like that so that all runs through the plants and we still need that because that would be a big learning curve uh, for our fish harvesters, especially our older skippers, to figure out how to do all that on their own. But if there were more options, like we could sell some out, we could sell some to outside buyers. Um, but I think like maintaining like our whole fishery industry, like plant workers, fishers, people who work at like big goods and tailors and all that, we got to keep that. Um, but there's still a little bit room for more stuff. Yeah, change needn't be overnight. Change no. can, can also be predictable, you know. So for an older skipper who's used to the way things are today, that doesn't mean that we're going to push that person aside tomorrow. Absolutely you not. know, it's just that here's what we're going to say, is that we have things that are going to be changing incrementally, and that would include not 10 years down the road, but this kind of change this year, this kind of change next year. We'll build on that change the year after, and in five years we'll transform the industry. It gives people a chance to... Uh, understand what's going on, have some opportunity for input what's going on, to understand the benefits of, of rejigging the structure, rejigging the governance, rejigging some of the timelines for you to be an enterprise owner. You know, it, we just don't have those conversations because, as I said, I think that what we talk about is where's the science, what's me IQ, and how much per pound? Yeah, I don't really care about that. <laughs> I don't deal with that stuff at all. I'm like, how do I feed my friends? How do I make sure I have a good future and how do I stay healthy and like also help protect the oceans and all that stuff too. Um, so, you know, like you were saying with like, if we could have set prices, you know, for a few years consecutively, it would be easier to create projections for revenue. Cause that's another thing that's really challenging now in a fisheries business. You never know how much you're going to make. So it's really hard to decide if you're going to have to go and buy a new motor or maybe you need a new hauler. If you do that next year, is that going to break the bank? So that would contribute as well. Like, I think $5 a pound is good for crab because the fishers get the profits and then the local people can eat it. Maybe 8 or 10 for lobsters and then $2 per pound for codfish. That's what I would like. That's what would work for me. Yeah, and how we actually put that hope or aspiration in play that actually makes it workable, you know, will take some time. We'll take some, take oh, yeah. some you know, real uh, looking inside and looking at markets and looking at how that benefits all hands in the fishery because everyone's got a different size boat. Well, you know what I mean. Now, yes. For someone in a skiff doesn't have the same business model as a 39.11 or a 65 footer and they all have a different individual quota which makes some of these things not quite as simple as it might sound exactly. but it makes you know but talking about the path to how we get to that hopeful outcome or somewhere near to it is i think an important conversation i really appreciate making time this morning i enjoyed the chat Oh, thank you so much, Patty. It's been nice to talk to you finally after wanting to call open line so long. And, yeah, I'll let you go and let you get on to the next caller. Thanks again. My pleasure. Talk again soon.
Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Jasmine Paul. Fish harvester, fifth generation, I believe she said. Let's take a break. When we come back, Terry Martin's in the queue. He's the fund development manager at the Canadian Heart Repairing Association. And then lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. So good morning to, to the, 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 the director of fund development at the Canadian Heart Repairing Association. That's our buddy, Terry Martin. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Terry. And uh, before I say anything about what I want to talk about, I just listened to your show. And uh, I have to say a big shout out to you. You do a great job. You do a great service to the people of this province. And it's amazing the knowledge and, and, and the compassion and the fairness at which you you do this job and you do it very well. And I just want to thank you for that. First of all, get that out of the way. I appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so uh, I guess I just wanted to mention that tonight uh, is, the, uh, is the deadline for the 50-50 ultimate uh, lottery that we have going now. And we do it, uh, you know, we do spring campaigns and this year winds down tonight and it's just a straight up 50 50 we've had some bonus prizes already and those have been given away and then we have uh right now the jackpot is over a hundred and forty five thousand dollars so of course the winner will take half of that and uh i just want to make sure that you know anyone who wants the opportunity to get involved they can and they can uh purchase them through 5050ultimate.com and of course we have a phone line as well at 709-800-6118 and I appreciate you letting me uh, get that out there yeah, no problem. Look, I mean, for the not-for-profits and the charities and representative organizations like yours, I mean, we have no problem trying to help you refill the coffers because what you do, you know, could not be replaced necessarily by all government in- intervention or government action. So your kind of associations are important, and we've we got a soft spot in our heart for the work you do. So let's just talk a little bit more about what this is going to achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is actually hard of hearing week or something, isn't it, inside... Yes, it is. Yeah, May of Speech and Hearing Month it is. Yes, oh, it is. Okay. So what what do you want people to know about what you do and the importance of this money to be raised, not only during the 50-50, but other, uh, other initiatives that you take on throughout the year? I mean, we, we do two of our own. You know, we do our 50-50 or, or some other type of spring campaign, one or the other, but we also do the Ultimate Dream Home. Yeah. And, you know, we're almost we're about 99% completely self-funded. So, you know, we rely on the funds that uh, that are given to us, that are entrusted to us, so that we can help uh, uh, people with hearing loss, them and their families, and, of course, where they work as well, because we have programs that, that get involved in, in all of those areas of people's lives. So all the money that we do raise, you know, goes into helping people's lives become better, regardless of their, you know, uh, uh, you know, visiting, you know, a loved one in a senior's home. You have a newborn child that has been diagnosed with a hearing loss. We've developed educational programs to help the small children. We And we're developing more all the time. Uh, you know, we do a speech reading program. Uh, we have uh, cochlear uh, um, implant, implant groups. We work with young teens through our art program. You know, we cover everything. And, and we have a myriad of people that come through our doors looking for help. And, you know, and, and it helps us to learn more about how we can help them, too, because, you know, no two issues are the same, and uh, but people's need is the same, and it's great, and it's growing, and, and you know, everything we do is, is just to, to help people's lives become better, and, you know, without hearing, uh, you know, it becomes a challenge, and uh, there's so many issues involved. That there is. I ran into Leon late, uh, recently as well, which has been a long time between sightings. Uh, give the folks details one more time, Terry, about how they can get involved with the Fidi Fidi. 
Okay, yes, well, you know, it's the 5050ultimate.com, so you can go right online and buy that. We have phone lines available at 709-800-6118, and our jackpot now is currently at 145000 so a $72,500 uh, payout is not too bad so far, but we expect that will grow, you know, over the next uh, 12 hours. But, uh, uh, you know, really appreciate your help and helping us get the message out. Patty, you're doing a great job. And, uh, and one other thing, the young lady who was just on, the young person who was entering the fishery, that was very encouraging to listen to as well. And that was a great conversation. So, Yeah, Jasmine, Jasmine was great. Thanks for this, Terry. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. And, and be well and be safe. You too. Bye-bye. It's Terry Marin, the Director of Fund Development at the Canadian Heart and Hearing Association. And look, just for clarification, I'm under no illusion. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. Totally get it. <laughs> and people remind me uh, daily of exactly that. <clears throat> Let's go to line number four. One of the groups kind of left out of the conversation here in this snow crab standoff are the plant workers. Beverly Dyke works at Bonavista Fish Plant. She joins us on four. Beverly, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Mor- How are you doing this morning? Doing terrific. How about you? Uh, I'm doing okay, I guess. Uh, bit concerned, uh, a uh, bit emotional this morning, actually, too, because, like, we've got a site on, we've got a, our plant got an, a site that we update our workers and everything, and uh, we just, uh, one of our workers just put it up on their own, and, like, I try to go in and update every day and let people know what's going on or if I got any news, and honestly, I took out my phone this morning to update online. And I never had anything to say. I'm at a last. I don't know what to be telling the plant workers. I, you know, like I'm, re- I'm receiving emails and calls every day. Uh, I've got, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got uh, people who got their EI round out. Uh, I've got people with families, uh, got no income coming in. Uh, we're five weeks now in uh, into the season. Uh, next week would have been six weeks, more than likely, if everything went okay, weather-wise and landing. And uh, we're really no further ahead than when it started. And uh, I'm just really concerned. I'm concerned. And I'm really concerned on the way this government is, like, they're staying pretty low-key. Now, don't get me wrong. I know they're encouraging both sides to get together and to talk and to do what got to be done. But evidently, that's not working. That's not working. And I think that it's okay for MHAs to come on and say, you know, get back at it, harvesters, get back at it, you know, uh, processors, whatever, get talking. But... I think it's going to take more than that. I think it's going to take a really serious intervention on behalf of this government to get something moving in the crab fishery. How so? What do you mean by that, Beverly? Uh, It's the same question I ask everyone who says that. I don't deny there's a role for government to play. I'm just not even really sure what that is. Well... You know, like I like I listened to the news last night, and there was one person uh, came on and said, you know, like in the price setting panel, they should be, you know, government should go back and give them more leeway or change the regulation instead of setting one price 
or another, you know, give them uh, the opportunity to meet halfway in between. You know, that's just my opinion on it, and I'm sure others' opinion. You know, that's one solution there. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm really baffled. I, I guess I've got no answers, really. But I, I think that, you know, like, the government is can help some way. Now, I'll put that one side. You know, like, as a plant worker and as I'm on the... Uh, I'm on the executive in the plant, and I'll speak on behalf of our president now, Barry Randall. He's been on the phone constantly uh, trying to get meetings with our MPs in Ottawa, and they did have a meeting, and I think there was a write-up on that and everything. You know, right now, at this point, our concern is, like, getting help for the people that haven't got anything coming in. And the the plant worker is cut in the middle of all this, you know, and I haven't heard many plant workers on here, and uh, I don't know, maybe I missed it, and uh, I did hear one uh, mayor on there this morning, he came on and spoke on behalf of the plant over in Biotic Fisheries, I think, you know, this is this is going to be, and I know if you said it, and uh, other people said it, this is going to be literally devastation. Because I know we're getting into the tourism season in our town, and that's wonderful. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful we got tourists coming in and we got businesses and restaurants and that are going to make their money. It's fabulous. But that, this plant here in Bonavista, this is the heartbeat of the town. And not only for Bonavista, for all up around. So, like, just taking the aspect of the crisis alone. You know, and I'm not against uh, I'm not against the fish harvesters either because God love them, they deserve more than what they're getting. You know, and plant workers know that, and we all we approve of what they're doing and everything, and I'll see the the processor side too. But you know, um, it's getting to a point now that. Uh, is, we're getting to a point where there's really a point of no return. We're right against it. I mean, I'm not in the industry. I don't know how, what merit there is in talking about the quality of the product. If we wait longer and longer and longer in the season, we know the ASP said they will not buy in the fall. So this is the epitome of the 11th hour, as far as I can tell. Yeah, you know, like, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm appealing. I came on this morning to appeal. I'm appealing to the government. You know, I know they're limited. They say they're limited in what they can do. But we're at a point now that somebody has got to intervene. Somebody has got to intervene and come to a satisfactory conclusion that's going to benefit all sides. And... The most and the people that's cut in the middle, as I just said, are the plant workers. We're losing our workers. I've got people calling me saying, Bev, I can't stay around any longer. I got a family to feed. Now they're younger people. My position in the plant, I'm, you know, I'm only year for year now. I'm in the older generation like a lot of us. But if we want to keep those young workers, if we want to keep food on their table, we got to give them something to stay around for. 
and they're losing all hope. We're all losing hope. You know, and I mean, say so I hear it every day in the voices of everybody. And I hear it in the voices of the fishermen, too. You know, like, and as one fisherman quoted to me the other day, when they quoted me what it costs to run their enterprise just in fuel alone, boggled my mind. Boggled my mind. And, but, it's, but you know, like, my main purpose this morning, Patty, is to call in to you and just appeal, appeal to the government, at least step in and try to help resolve this more than what they are doing right now. I appreciate the time, Beverly. Hopefully something uh, happens positive on the positive side in this sooner than later. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate you taking my call. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, break time for the newscast. When we go back, hydro versus fossil fuels. What does that mean? We'll find out from Leo. Then we're going to talk about some of the government's comments about Frank Roberts Junior High. They Apparently the school, the building passed the health and safety inspection. Not necessarily uh, what we're hearing from the parents and the students in the school. So we'll talk about that, a bit of child care and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the opposition house leader, the PC member for CBS. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind to you. I'm good, Patty. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm calling in here to talk about Frank Roberts, but before I get to that, if I get a second... Uh, something else occupied the news a lot this week is the old Newfoundland being uh, not being reinstated at the uh, month's convocation. And Patty, I've probably spoke at length, and many, many people heard us sing, and lots of commentary. But I have to restate, it's one of the more out-of-touch things this university has done. I mean, they're in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons. It's absolutely, totally unacceptable. You know, you got the legislature of the province, the 40 members represent the entire province. We passed a resolution last year unanimously. We stood in the house, the house the other day, we sang boat anthems, Old Newfoundland, Old Labrador. We're pleading with the university to, to not do this, and they just turn, they're basically, basically turning their back on the legislature and the people of this province. It's totally unacceptable, and there is a possibility, I mean, government, I presented, a, I asked um, Crystalline Owl, Minister Owl yesterday, uh, about probably the provincial anthem. Uh, legislation that can be changed, and it should basically that decision should be taken from Mon, and basically government should have that have that on their own their own umbrella, and Mon don't have to worry about. It. And if there's any changes they want to bring about the inclusion inclusion sorry, uh, the provincial government should do it because you can't be inclusive by being exclusive. I've said it, and I've heard you say it, and Mon should unite us, not divide us, and they're doing everything the opposite. And that's my two cents on that, and I feel very strongly, and I I. I don't mind pulling punches on this one here. They, they're getting everything they deserve, and the public are upset. And I'm not alone in my commentary, and I would say the majority of the province feel the same way. It's an absolute insult to people in this province. The, I think they kind of admit a mistake by doing it how they did it. Like if they were going to identify it as a potential or possible concern, and they were going to entertain their collegial governance model, and they were going to have widespread consultations, that's one thing. And, you know, if they came out with recommendations, and there was some public understanding about how, what they were doing, why they were doing it, as opposed to this is a problem and it has to go away. It's just, you know, sort of 
cart before the horse kind of stuff. So I don't know if there's going to be reconsideration here, but, you know, and nor is it the most important topic at Mon or anywhere else, but it's an emotional issue, and emotional issues get a lot of traction. And I don't know if they're listening or caring or whatever the case may be, but it's just a strange way to be inclusive is to exclude something. I j- it just flies in the face of what the actual definition of the word means. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Patty. And you're right, it's an emotional issue. And, I mean, we speak about a lot of important issues, and that's very important. And we can never forget, our, our, you know, where we come from, our past, and what we what we stand for as people. And I feel very strongly, and I know we all do. And, you know, so, you know, and speaking of issues of importance, obviously, it's a, you know, it's a huge issue I'm dealing with my district right now. It's uh, Frank Roberts Jr. High. Uh, you know, Minister Haggy, you know, he, he's been very dismissive, which is not not uncommon for him. And, you know, he's basically saying everything's fine. You know, they've done the specs in school. Everything's excellent. No issues there whatsoever. We have a few mice. I mean, it's minimizing an issue. Pictures don't lie. I don't think the parents don't lie. Uh, the issues are real. I mean, I'm speaking to NLTA President Langdon. He's getting it from his teachers. We all have the same concerns. I don't think, you know, I don't think we're uh, in an alternate universe. I mean, this, these issues are real. I mean, you can spin it whatever way you want. I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, this, this is factual. I got a picture of a filter out of one of those air purifiers and, uh, I seen this morning, and it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I even share the pictures, probably on Facebook anyway, but but I mean, these you know, this parents don't lie, pictures don't lie. These people are speaking out, Patty, on bombarded with emails, Facebook groups. These parents got a lot better things to be worried about. Obviously, the number one issue with their children, they would, they don't want to be, they're not creating this. This, these issues are real. And you know, one one thing I noticed in uh, the house the other day, a colleague of mine said, you know, one thing in minister's response to your question was, he missed one word. And I was, you know, and his word was unacceptable. He said, a minister of crown, should, this should not be, he's just jumping up and dismissing everything that's been said. It's unacceptable. You know, to stand in front of the cameras and do what he does, I mean, fine, Danny, he done this in health petty. And, I mean, you know, that's, you know, this is what he's done. He done it with the cyber attack. He took, dismissed that. And, I mean, he even read the, he read the executive summary on something. He never, like, I'm tired of it, and I think the people in this province are tired of it. I know people in my district are tired of it. And as long as he's occupying the education portfolio, offer some credence, offer some, offer some care, give people some hope. You know, I mean, I'm frustrated by this. You know, and there's a rally next Thursday, and I'm going to stand with the people in my district. And that's what I'm elected to do. They're the ones who put me here. And I will be up there Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. Maybe he should come up, too, and talk to the parents and say what he's saying in front of a camera, because I don't think he'd get the same response. And I, and I, I you can might sense my anger, and maybe it is not anger, Patty's passion, and I really feel for the parents, I feel for the students, I feel for the teachers, and this is unacceptable, and the minister to come out and say these comments, he's, all he's done is galvanized the parents, and he's galvanized everyone else with the parents, including me, and I think then LTA and everyone else, this is totally unacceptable, I can't be more clear on the issue like that, and the minister got to, I mean, this, these issues are not, they're not imagining them, you go into school, clean floors and a clean garbage bucket, Patty, is not getting, you know, that don't mean school is in excellent condition, I know the school, it was my high school, it's been there a long time. It's had many issues, and it's happened over the years. They don't even have a cafeteria, Patty, let alone the overcrowding and all the other issues that are there we're not talking about. I mean, and rats are there. I heard see the video, rat runs your eater. I mean, that's real. It's not a mouse. It's a rat. So to be dismissive, and, and, and I mean, it really, it's really unfair. It's unfortunate, and I think the parents and the students, like saying teachers, deserve better. We all deserve better. 
I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Look, people are sending me pictures and videos too, so <laughs> I'm not so sure how to dispute what I can absolutely distinguish between a mouse and a rat. Absolutely, Patty, and that's around to too. And I appreciate you, Tom. The show will talk about it in the future. Thanks, Barry. All the best. Uh, okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Barry Patton is the opposition house leader, PC member for CBS. Uh, final break of the morning and the week. Leo, you're next to talk about hydro versus fossil fuels. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let us go. Line number two. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, before I get to my main topic, I'd like to throw a bouquet to the members of the House of Assembly. If I could. <laughs> Far away. <laughs> I, I got a lot of miles behind me. I've had a lot of, lot of years, I'll tell you that. And, and with uh, a lot of years, I guess, come a lot of regrets. And my main one was that I never got education and... Uh, I was, you know, I never, I never got a chance. I was in the dory when I was 13 years old. But anyway, I'm looking at the at the people that that, that that in the House of Assembly or watching these people in the House of Assembly, and I regret that I never had education. But when I'm looking at these people here, they're supposed to be intelligent and smart, and I'm seeing them on the screen. And you know something. If that's intelligent and smart, I think I want to go with stupids. What are we talking about in particular? Well, the men, the, the, you, 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 oh, I've watched them there on TV. I mean, they're, they're crazy. They're, you know, people compare them to a child, but I wouldn't, in, 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 it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, disgrace a child to compare them to the members of the House of Assembly, the way that they get on. Sometimes it's certainly not the decorum that we deserve uh, from members. They just get carried away, and some of it's just so bloody unnecessary. And, you know, I, I would imagine that many of them get in without thinking that they'd end up you know, behaving like that in the House. Yeah. I think the Speaker has to take a bit more control. And Leo, honest to God, I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that it's uh, carried on television, you know, so they think that their yeah. little barbs might get a soundbite on the news or people be watching it and banging on the desks. I mean, I don't know. Bye. Yeah, it's hard to, to comprehend, I'll tell you that, you know. That's what I mean. Say they are supposed to be intelligent, you know. I mean, say they're educated people. But anyway, what I want to get at is uh, we're getting a lot of people are being subsidized now for going to electric, and, uh, to electricity, really. But uh, what I'm looking at and I wonder about is, say, for instance, uh, I don't know how long it takes to charge up one of these electric cars for what it costs. So probably not very much, I don't think. No. I know it's two fifty or three dollars or something like that. Five dollars. Well, I mean, it all depends on how low the battery is and what have you. Yeah. But the cost for me to fuel my rig versus people who have EVs charging them—they're yeah. making off like bandits compared to my bills. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Well, you take for instance now, if you and I are in Cornerbrook and I'm driving an electric car and you're driving your half-ton pickup and we're going to St. John's. Now. It'll probably cost me $10 in my electric car, where it'll cost you probably 150 in your pickup. The thing is here, you're paying taxes on 150 and I'm paying taxes on $10. Now, who's picking up the slack, or who's going to pick up the slack? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means the taxes, okay... When we go to electric cars, the money that the government is hauling in on taxes now on fuel, they're not going to haul in that much on electric, on the electric car, are they? 
Right. And I mean, say, where, who's who's going to make up slack? Where's where's the money? Where's the the tax dollar that uh, we're uh, we're collecting now? Say in transportation, uh, we're not going to pick uh, what probably five percent or something like that if we go to electric. Yeah, it depends on the level of tax uh, taxes applied. Now, yeah, I, you yeah. know, people talk about th- this as if it's happening in great order, and you know, we're almost there. But we're nowhere near anywhere uh, towards no. any type of transition. So, how we pay for stuff and how government uh, approaches revenue versus what the expenditures look like year over year, I think there's lots of time to figure out any t- potential shortfall. I mean, it's so no, far down the road. No, too much about that. It's not too far down the road, Patty. Well, it is. They're Leo, talking I mean, about. They're talking about. Uh, there'll be no more internal uh, combustion engines after 35. No new ones sold. No new ones sold. Just for context. So that, means, that means by about 45 or 50, there won't be an internal uh, combustion uh, engine on the road. Well, it depends okay. on whose government and who's the holding seat of government as well. But put it this way, there's lots associated costs with the current uh, amount of greenhouse gas emissions, so that's one thing. Secondly, when we talk about this massive transition that people think is in full speed ahead, 3% of the planet's vehicle fleet is electric. 3%. I mean, 3%, it's, right. It's all, man, there's a long, long way to go. Lots of people are waiting for the price to come back to Earth, which it seems to be doing. Lots of people are waiting for the technology to be yet again improved, which is what I'm doing. So, I think we've got lots of time to figure out the expense versus revenue issues surrounding gasoline and just remember the vast majority of the price that we're paying at those pumps that's not going to government anyway no government, i know that the vast amount but a damn good cut of it is no no so uh-huh. there's not so if let's say at a buck 80 there's a 10 cent excise tax which has been in place has never changed since, since it was imposed provincial gas tax in and around 16 cents let's say the carbon tax today in and around the same amount so out of a buck 80 that was 10 16 16 so 32 42 42 cents out of a buck 80 yeah 40 yes out of a buck 80 yeah but that's all right, too. But the people that are going to electric, I mean, see, they're going to have to charge, put the tax on the elect- on, on, on the hydro. Some of it. Yeah, I, I think I get your argument, but yeah. I think it might not be as big a deal as you're forecasting it to be. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not going to live to see it for damn sure. It's not going to bother me, but it's just a thought. Yeah, there is going to be some uh, reduction in revenue from charging up or fueling up your rig. There, that's fair. Yeah, and I mean, say if if they're going to pick up the, the the taxes that they're losing and stick it on uh, on the hydro, well, then it's going to affect the people. It's going to affect your household uh, cars too. Eventually. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take it easy, Ben. You too, Leo. All the best. Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye. Uh, final word this morning and the week goes to line three. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, you doing, Daddy? Doing okay. You? Not too bad. Not too bad. I just uh, wanted to touch on the, the wildfire stuff there. I've talked to you before this. I lost my house in Fort Mac back in 16 and stuff like that. And I, I'm, I'm living down here in CBS in Seal Cove. And we see a big fire going on on over across the bay. Um, apparently, it's the uh, the blueberry factory or something. Blueberry fields over there. They're sort of scrubbing out the areas and everything like that. But I th- I, I just think it should be announced 
that there's going to be controlled fire burns done, people should be known about it. Well, I think there's probably better communication than we're hearing here versus what people in the citizens, whether it be in the town of Edson, where I had buddies who were evacuated, or people close by controlled burns. Because when I lived out there, controlled burns were important, especially in the park. And I was, actually, I was actually part of a crew that our only job was to uh, take away the fire load, the windfall. So, yeah, I think the communication might be different than what we're hearing here. You know, and, and I, I, I really think, like, the deadfall that is in and around, like, just from traveling in and around the city here, like Holyrood and, and stuff like that, like, it needs to be cleaned up because it's just a disgrace. Well, it's a disgrace, but it's a fire burn. Well, absolutely. Like once, that, once that stuff starts to go, it's gone. Well, it's the kindling, right? You know, so the, the the dead windfall or the fire load, as people call it, as opposed to how quickly a living standing tree will burn are two distinctly different things. And fire spread quicker when the deadfall is a big part of the fuel source for the fire. So no argument here. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Rob, right up against 12 o'clock. I'm glad you called. Hope you're doing well. Okay, then. Thanks. And, and just uh, throw it out there like if they're controlled burns on the go, throw them out there. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there we go. Uh, good week. Appreciate the support the program gets, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly, wishing you all a happy Mother's Day. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.